Welcome to the last episode of Startup Dad for 2023. It has been one hell of a year. Starting in June, I released a show a week for the entire rest of the year. That's 26 episodes in total, and this one makes 27. Talking parenthood with dozens of startup dads and a few startup moms blew away all of my expectations this year. To end the year, I pulled together the best conversations from 2023. You'll hear about parenting mistakes, successes, frustrations, challenges, frameworks, advocacy, and loss. This is the best of over two dozen conversations. And at the end, I've shared some of my guests' hopes and excitement for 2024 with a segment on what they're most looking forward to in the new year. Also, a special shout out goes to my editor, Tommy Heron, who became a startup dad himself for the second time when he welcomed his new son this year. Thanks for all of your help making this show so great. No parent is perfect. Here are some of the biggest mistakes shared by startup dads. I think the one that I probably make most often is I feel they're older than what they are. I feel like the brain maturity should be older. And there's just times, and I think what dawns on me is like the mistakes I make is when you look at the previous year, you know, like the school picture and you're like, oh my gosh, they were so young. And you're like, yeah, but that was only a year ago. They're still so young. And I think that's the biggest mistake is just, you know, assuming they have that maturity and that logic and stuff like that. And we know they absolutely do not. (laughs) Um, And so like the stupid shit that they do and the, you know, the things that are like, why would that even make sense? Yeah. And I think that's like the mistake I make most often is just assuming they understand that stuff, assuming they built up, you know, that Rolodex of things that they understand in life. And that's what's really tough, right? You just, you assume and then they don't know and then it, you know, spirals into frustration and you're like, why am I frustrated? Like when I was that age, I was doing just as stupid things in different ways. (laughs) That's um, right. And probably getting into a lot more trouble. So, you know, I think that's probably like the biggest theme in my life of mistakes is kind of that, you know, thinking that they're older than what they truly are and having that expectation of them. It's not fair. Lose my temper. Like when it was really not necessary, when you just mm-hmm. you think you're in the right and you think you need to make this point and you need to instill on that kid that they were like in the wrong and, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. And it just, it escalates. And, you know, at one point, like you get super flustered and they get flustered, especially as they get older, it's more back mm. chat with that, you know? Mm-hmm. And actually when you go back and you just, you, you lie in bed and you go, that was not necessary. Like we didn't need to go to that place where we both were angry at each other because it wasn't yeah. that important and you should have just let it go. And I think that's the thing I've, I've found with most dads I talk to as well. It's like that emotional uh, resilience of actually just sometimes just letting it go. We're so good at doing it that at work where we just yeah. go like, you know, somebody might ruffle our feathers or we go in and we already don't like the other person, but we're still nice. We're still pleasant. And then with our own kids, we just lose the temper. It's just like, it's really stupid. So that would be my one. I can very much relate to that, especially what you mentioned about the professional versus personal. It's so much easier professionally. What do you do to recover from that when you lose your temper? How do you come back from that? I mean, nowadays, I will definitely try to, if it happens, to make up with the kid as soon as I can. 
Mm. So it might have been beforehand, you might go, like, oh, you know, I'll wait till tomorrow or whatever, but I wouldn't. Like, I would just, as soon as I realized, like, this is stupid, like, A, leave it and just give them a hug as soon as possible and just, you know, just drop it, you know, we're, we're good. I mean, we spend so much time with each other, you know, as a family that we've seen all the bad sides, we know, but we also think deep down just know that, you know, we are a loving family and this stuff is stupid and we should just drop it. I was not a good dad for like the first year or two of my older son's life. I think I felt like I was drowning. I had a co-founder who is a bit older than me and was giving me all the right mentorship, but like so much mentorship, it, it takes making your own mistakes and then like several years of lag time to actually click. But I think, I hate to say it, you know, Boone had a pretty difficult birth. We tried to have a home birth and it was really a fraught situation. I think I went back to work like two or three days after that. And I would give myself a D minus for, for, you know, first year or two of figuring out, you know, how to be a dad. And I really think, you know, I want to think that I've gotten better since then, but I had no idea how to balance. I know you're going to ask me about balancing and I think I've gotten better over time. I remember feeling like, you know, Boone was born and I loved him immediately. He's got this, you know, bright red hair, which was a huge surprise to everybody. Same. Not so bright anymore, but he's got, he's got the really big red stuff. I'm holding it in my arms and I had two thoughts sequentially. I was like, oh shit, it's just me and and this kid. Like I I had sort of envisioned some metaphorical responsibility cape that was going to light on my shoulders and, you know, I would step into a new realm of presence and all of that. None of that should happen. It was me and a kid that was sort of terrifying to me. I would say in general, just being easier on ourselves and it's kind of more of a mindset thing than anything else, but I think really there's so much stuff you could, when you look around, like, you know, especially in these circles that we're in, in the Bay Area in general, like there's a lot of really, for lack of a better word, just uptight parents. It all comes from a good place, I think, like wanting the best for your kids and, you know, giving them an edge or just, you know, making sure you have the best. And when you're high achievement, that kind of filters down to your kids and you strive for the same for them. But there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't matter, frankly, at the end of the day, whether it be around getting the best gear, stressing over like preschool admissions. And so much of it at the end of the day comes down to like, do you have like love in the household? And like, can they actually like feel that? And it probably took me a while to to kind of realize that. But you start to see as the kids get a little bit older, like they are very conditioned by you, even if it's like subconscious, but like, you know, the overall energy that you set in a home is impacting how a kid's behaving. And To me, paying closer attention to that and, like I said, being really present and making sure that our collective relationship is in a really good place, like that, I would say I probably didn't think enough about that early on. And especially like you talk about the pandemic stuff, like there's a lot of negative energy, like, you know, around that we're scared, you know, it's kids could feel that I think even from a very young age. And I would probably have put a little bit more care into that, you know, early on. I regret the two or three moments where in a fit of anger, I've yelled at my kids because they don't know. And yelling at them doesn't make it better. In fact, they don't understand it. And that's more an emotional response from your side, but they don't get it. And it makes no difference. I was never yelled at by my dad growing up. And I wish Mm -hmm. I could emulate his behavior. But sometimes you get impatient and you're in an environment where like, you know, it's COVID times and like you're on a Zoom call with lots of people and somebody yanks the internet connection and you lose mm-hmm. it. Right? 
But I regret that. You know, I, I try not to set myself up for failure. And what I mean by that, just kind of revisiting an earlier part of the conversation, I, I try not to overcomplicate it. So I, I really just try to love my kids, you know, help them feel loved every moment of every day. And, you know, I think I've done a good job of that. You know, I, I've dropped balls here and there and, you know, like screwed up this, that, or the other thing. But and I'm not saying I set the bar low. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, I, I think all of the mistakes I've made, none of them are, I guess, mistakes of the heart, right? Like I, you know, I probably kept him up too late or, you know, I might've been away for some event that it would have been nice to be at. But again, all in this spirit of doing the best that I can. And so yeah. I feel pretty good about that. One was that devious versus, hey, they're just being resourceful. Another one was... I happen to enjoy working hard and I happen to care an awful lot about knowing my kids and my wife. Those are the, you know, the most important things to me. And there was a time when I thought knowing my kids was about the number of hours with them. And that can create a bunch of tension where there aren't enough hours in the day. And to realize that's actually not it. It was quality minutes with the kids. I remember times when I would carve out several hours and we just wouldn't feel connected. And then there'd be times where I have a 20 minutes with them, but we were really together, mm -hmm. focused on whatever it was that was important to them. And they felt more connected and more engaged and more enriched. That was a humbling learning for me that I didn't learn until way too late. So we didn't go for a crib. We just put him in the floor bed. At the advice of some friends of us who at the <laughs> time only had like an 18 month old. Mm -hmm. so that was maybe lesson number one is don't take advice from parents who only <laughs> have an 18 month old where they themselves haven't really experienced the consequences sure. of what could have been a terrible decision. <laughs> I think it was not, I don't know if it was a good decision for them or not, but in any yeah. case, so our son has never slept in a crib. And also he was like an early mover. He was crawling around five months. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And he's kind of tall, so he can reach door handles pretty easily. <laughs> you can see where this is going. There's a trifecta here that is you know, a perfect storm. He doesn't do well being left alone in his floor bed, right? Okay. Knowing exactly where the door is and exactly where mom and dad are. And as a result, we've spent a lot of time putting him to sleep in these last two years. I mean, <laughs> just to be blunt, like, you know, I cuddle him to bed most every night in this floor bed, which is absolutely delightful. It's like I'm usually pretty tired and about to fall asleep myself. Sure. And it is, you know, very rich and rewarding and lovely kind of like family bonding time for me and him. But when we do a sleepover at our friend's place or we see other parents kind of putting their yep. kids down, they're just like, take the kid, put it in the crib and then just like leave. <laughs> and it's like five minutes, right? Like, I'm like, yeah. oh my God, like that takes me like an hour. Like we're talking this order of magnitude difference in efficiency. And again, like a you know, I work at a productivity company, like efficiency is my jam. Like I'm, and you know, sometimes I'm like, well, I'm so efficient in every other part of my life just so that I can earn the right to be incredibly hyper inefficient at bedtime. But it's, you know, we're getting there. Like he's now at the age where we can communicate and I can say something like, I am leaving the room. I'm yeah. still here if you need me. Or like, I would like you to stay in bed. You know, he can kind of understand these things now. Yeah. There was a whole period where I was trying that and it just didn't compute for him. Like he would just get stressed out. <laughs> But, you know, what would I do over? I'd buy a crib. Yeah. <laughs> like, so like, you know, people have figured this out. There is a reason those things have, like, yeah. walls around them that mean that the kid cannot escape. And I never had the heart to, like, lock the door from the outside or anything yeah. like that. So yeah. that's definitely a do-over moment. I, I think a lot of my mistakes 
are about trying to, I don't know if a lot of parents do this or not, but it's hard to model the brain of a child into your own head. So like when you're making decisions that impact them, it's really hard to know, like, where are they really? Like, what is, what are they really feeling right now? And so sometimes I have a tendency to, especially with my older kid, to think he's more mature than he is, you know, that he's not just 12, that he's 20 or something and be like, okay, well, he still needs lots of physical affection. He still needs lots of soothing and like, especially he was six when Louis was born. He remembers having a lot more of my attention. So I have to remember that, that is a difficult situation and to remember to include him as much, like in a lot of ways, sometimes even more than the younger one, because he remembers how it was different. Mm -hmm. So I think that is one, you know, tending to prioritize the youngest one over because like his needs are just so much louder. I I do think about that a lot and returning to questions, like not just assuming that one conversation about something is enough, like having multiple conversations about things, especially like, you know, there's always something new, like coming to to awareness about death, coming to awareness about like the state of our relationships, coming to awareness about his own like sort of place in the world takes a lot of not like just, and this is a, a thing yeah. that is just true about humans. I think where like, we just require lots of repeat communication. So those are mistakes I've made. I think think about you know it's hard to say. Like a lot of them are mistakes I'm okay having made because you know, I'm also just a human person that you know can't be perfect. So things about knowing the right way to sleep train Louis. Like I I don't know. Did we go in too hard with that? Because like we did nothing with Nico knowing when to intervene, when sharing isn't happening with friends. Like, when do you draw the line and say like disciplining around like violence and like hitting people or yelling or saying mean things? Like, I don't think I get any of it right. So I'm always just like course correcting one direction or the other. And anytime like a friend or another parent comes over and they see like the chaos of my house, like, it's like, oh, maybe I am doing things wrong. (laughs) I gotta like, rethink this, but it's more like mistakes of overcorrection or undercorrection. As long as I'm still trying to correct in the right direction, I, I give myself a break. I think I probably don't do enough explanation to the kids on why certain things have to be a certain way or tell them no versus like, you know, get them to the no themselves. Uh, and I think that's something that's like, you know, frustrating, but I do it anyway. So, so yeah. that's probably the big, big one that I kind of get, you know, upset by myself about. I guess think, thinking it would be easy, <laughs> think it would be easy, like thinking that I'd somehow naturally just be a great dad instead of something that I'd have to really work at, you know, something that would, I, I didn't think it would be something that would find new ways to challenge and test me pretty much every mm-hmm. single day. And so I think that's at a macro level, the biggest mistake. Yeah. Parenting is filled with the highest highs and the lowest lows. Here are some parenting successes shared by startup dads and moms. Yeah, so let me just kick this response off with a quote that I love. It's by a writer and speaker named Harville Hendricks. His quote is, the unconscious purpose of marriage is to finish childhood. Wow. Which is a pretty heavy idea when you think about it, right? So... I think for me, what that has meant is I'm someone who's looking for the truth. Like I am trying to understand who I am. That is on the 
written in the dome of the Acropolis, which is the most like important place of worship for the Greeks, which is to know thyself. That's mm -hmm. where that famous quote is written among many other places. So to me, that is something I take really seriously. There's a connotation that getting married, there's a loss. You can't be who you are. You give up stuff. You're compromised beyond who you could be. And I would like to propose that that is completely backwards, that you couldn't be who you can become unless you meet somebody who can inspire you, compel you, who can help you want to grow into the person that you really could be. And the way that's possible is only through relation, only through deep intimacy and going through all the barriers, the patterns that would prevent one from being able to be deeply intimate, to being deeply honest with oneself and someone else and to foster that for someone else as well. Wow. Well, that's what you meant by it. I was not sure. And now I know. I think I agree with you. I mean, I've been married now almost 15 years. I'm a very different person, maybe not the best sometimes, but certainly a lot better than I think I would have been had I never met my wife. So I can relate. I hear you on that. I think people sense this a little bit. You hear someone say like, yeah, this is my better half. That's what the men say, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of a keyhole into the concept here. Kids are just so different. My daughter is the most social person in the world. She would talk to a wall, you know, if that was all that was around, she would do that. So her friends, she knows people at like all the adjacent schools around. It's just like her network is massive. And my son has a great close group of friends, but he's not the like social person who would go and meet everyone at all times. So like kids are very different. And that's one. I also like going back to when they were young, I had a feeling that like, oh, I'm going to, as a parent, I'm going to shape them and, you know, mold their personalities. And you realize there's just a lot of it that's pre-baked in them that, you know, they're on a trajectory and maybe you can like bump it one way or another, but their trajectory is kind of like they're there. And that's really awesome because it isn't just like me molding it. There's like a little person that you're trying to discover and find and who they are and like help them discover and figure that out. And that's really fun. But yes, the challenges are different as they get older. And so what I was talking about with my son and my daughter, just because of who they are. And even honestly, just like one's a boy, one's a girl. I have found it's interesting me as a dad, how I respond to them is different. It's weird. So with my daughter, there's boys around and right or wrong, probably mostly wrong. I view the boys as an enemy. I am like, <laughs> there are enemy targets, you know, nearby. We need to get rid of them. You know, like, yeah, that's my feeling. Seek and like, destroy. Seek and destroy. There are boys around. I need to be in protect mode of my daughter. Like, and that is probably not the most healthy view of it. I'm just like, that is what's going on in my head. I don't act on it all the time, but that is what's happening on my head. So, you know, sure. sometimes I put the tank top on, I can go outside and flex a little. I'm sure the neighbors would love that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you know, that, that's how I feel with my daughter. With my son, I'm on the other end. There's situations where, you know, I hear that there's like, girl has a crush and I'm like, you do not be rude to her. Yeah. You don't have to like her back, but if she says hi, you say hi. 
you don't talk bad behind their back. Like the reactions I have are just very different with the two of them, which mm. is interesting. But yeah, my daughter is at this, like just going into freshman year. She mm-hmm. went to a concert this weekend, Luke Bryant, a popular country star at Shoreline Amphitheater, which for a parent feels like you're going into the great abyss. Yeah, there's yeah. like Shoreline is like 20, 25,000 people. It's or. a lot. And she had lawn tickets, and this is like not a sit down symphony, enjoy the music. This is like, let's have a party and let's have a good time type of a show. Yeah. And, you know, we were obviously like, how about mom goes with you and your friends? And she was like, how about you just drop us off? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, this is the thing you have to like go, okay. And we talked to her about drugs, alcohol, what you're going to see. And she just thought we were being ridiculous. Like, oh, you guys are overthinking it. And she came home and she had a great time, loved it, danced and sang the whole time. Like, it was all good. But she came home and she's like, oh, my gosh, there was a lot of people doing drugs and drinking. And she said, I went to go to the bathroom and I saw someone I knew that came out of the bathroom. And they're like, don't go in there. There's three girls puking in there right now. And so it was... It was a bit of a like, whoa, yeah, this is different. Now, no, nothing happened. It was all good. Like her time was fine. It just adds another level of worry and stress to a parent's life, knowing that your kids are off doing that. And it just changes. Yeah. Just, it just changes. And, you know, my son is still in the, like, there could be a beautiful woman would walk by on the beach and get in the middle of this wiffle ball game. And he'd be like, oh, gosh, you ruined the wiffle ball game. That's where his mind and like honestly, yeah. I kind of understand that twelve-year-old boy brain pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's where his mindset is, which I think things will change, obviously, but that's where he is right now. I think there's like this constant kind of experience of, at least from a father's perspective, that you know you see your kids learning these new things, you see them experiencing the world. And oftentimes that leads to a level of protectiveness, like trying to like scoop them up and say like, oh, the, I, I know that this is really interesting, but it's also dangerous. Mm-hmm. And we forget that the word awe literally means a combination of wonder and fear. Mm. And so I think it's okay to let your kids experience the world and take risk in doing so. And so I think that's like really what I've tried to balance as a father is like, I don't want to prevent my kids from putting themselves in risky situations. I want them to like fully experience what that's like, because otherwise they won't really experience all in the world. They won't really know what it's like to climb up Angel's Landing at Zion National Park, figuratively speaking. Yeah. And that's where all the best experiences come from. I was resistant to going back when Sarah brought it up probably six months before I decided I really wanted to go back. I think I was just dead set on doing everything I could for my family, helping raise the kids so Sarah could focus on work. And going back to something I said earlier, I think that it's important to be present as a parent. And I no longer felt like I could be present because I wasn't getting everything I needed mentally and emotionally just from focusing on the kids. It had been three and a half years. It ended up being four years before I re-entered the workforce. And my brain was just stagnating after you know, having had a 17-year career. I no longer really 
knew who I was anymore. It was kind of mm -hmm. confusing. And so Sarah planted the seed. And then like many things I decide to do, as soon as I decide I want to do it, I just go all in. And so when I shared with Sarah, I was really eager to go back to work. Her first idea was come work for Winnie. Always be recruiting. <laughs> Day one meeting Sarah, like she always wanted to work together. Might have even had the idea of like us doing a startup together a couple times, which I don't think I latched on to in the beginning. But yeah, I went back part-time initially and full-time this past September. Awesome. Uh, Sarah, what was the interview process like for hiring Eric to come work at Winnie? Yeah, so he doesn't report to me, and I actually didn't interview him. Like it was there might be more layers than when I was at Google. Yeah, there were a lot sure. of there were a lot of <laughs> we're separating as much as possible here. Work structure stuff, but like <laughs> it was really important, like to the team that he was interviewed. Like I knew he was amazing. I was like, guys, you don't need to interview him. Like he's so good. But anyway, the team was like very skeptical. And I, I was like, okay, like do your interview process. I'm not going to be part of it. Like you're all going to make a decision, give the normal interview process. And like the people were really skeptical before meeting him. And then literally after like the one round of interviews, people were like, oh my God. <laughs> He's amazing. Like, yeah. I was so skeptical. Like, I didn't know how it would work. And like, then we talked to him and like, we have to hire him immediately. So, I, I mean, I think that's just a good lesson. Like, you know, people will form judgments and mm -hmm. opinions and often they just need to give these ideas a chance. I knew we could work really well together and that it wouldn't be a problem and it would be a huge asset to Winnie. I think people were concerned that like, I would have more influence. I was like, I already have all the influence, guys. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm the, the CEO. CEO. Like, I don't know like, that I need to have more influence, but okay. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know what people were concerned about. But after meeting Eric and after interviewing him, like all those concerns went away. So that, that was really good. As far as like, like when I started planting the seed in Eric's head that he needed to work, like I, I saw that he was like, doing a lot of projects and spending a lot of time on things that I was like, okay, this is like excessive. Like he had become one of those pandemic bakers and like <laughs> taken it to like new extremes every day. There would be like new baked goods and like bought all the professional baking equipment. And, you know, he built a bunch of stuff in our house, like baby banisters for like the kids to use that were different from the regular yeah. staircase thing, like put in like a heating cooling system. And like, I had never seen this guy do anything handy in his life. <laughs> and suddenly he's like basically a general contractor. Like I don't, it just came out of nowhere. Like all these new skills and talents. And I was like, this is really cool. Like, I love having a professional baker and, you know, professional handyman and all that stuff. But, like, this is not the best use of yeah. his brain and skill set. It was secretly a cry for help, Eric. Yeah. yeah. We have 18 and 15-year-old girls. The first one went off to college a month ago, which is just mind-boggling to me because I remember the beginning like it was yesterday. And the 15-year-old just started high school. Wow. Two big milestone moments in life. Big, big transitions. How have they been doing with the big new life changes? Fortunately, they both landed really well. For the oldest, she 
is a strong, confident, independent young woman. She's ready. And as a side note, as her father, it was incredible to hold so deeply at the same time, immense pride about that and immense sadness because I don't get to see her every day anymore. Yeah. And both are true at the same time. And a 15-year-old started a new high school and she found her people, which is really awesome. Nice. She's enjoying it a lot. I almost feel like the marker of success today isn't intensity. It's almost a focus, an ability to do deep work amongst all the craziness. Because, I mean, frankly, there's a lot of resources out there for people who like want to do a thing. But, you know, localizing on which resource is important for you and actually going deep on it. Some of the investment advice you hear, which I think is kind of interesting, is like, you know, there's lots of good ideas out there. Like pick one and just do it incredibly yeah. deeply, incredibly thoughtfully, and you'll probably win. You know, there's lots of different ways to be in the world, but being serious about one and optimizing it is what sets people apart today. And so I almost yeah. feel like the patience and the space and the adherence to your own center is almost like a bigger gift to a child in today's distracted environment than a sense of intensity and drive. Because the world actually has that intensity on offer at all times. For me, observing my kids, like learning and figuring things out is like a really remarkable thing, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like simple math problems or like, you know, uh, like when my son first figured out like one plus one was two and like, you know, like, like oh, there's one car and the second car, there's two cars. Like that was just like, on his face, it could just be like, you know, so I think that's been like really amazing to watch. Uh, and I don't think I had a full cognition of what that would be like to kind of observe. You were named the third coolest dad in America <laughs> by fatherly.com. You beat yeah. out Barack Obama, Childish Gambino, and only lost to LeBron James and Kelly Slater. How did that come about? How does one identify you as the coolest dad in America? No clue. I mean, these were in like Instagram heydays. Yeah. And I was one of a handful of photographers that had the keys to the National Geographic Instagram account. And so we built that from zero basically into 200 and whatever 60 million people wow. on it. But at the time I had a large following and I was feeding National Geographic and my son was starting to go on travels with me with a camera and I posted a picture of him on National Geographic's Instagram stream when it didn't have, you know, nobody tried to control what we put on that feed. Mm -hmm. And everybody wanted to see what he was taking pictures of. And I couldn't put it on there and I couldn't put it on my own. So I started an Instagram account for a four-year-old that day, which I never let him look at. And within like a couple of days, there were 30,000 people on it. Wow. And I think that this group called fatherly.com, one of these father's publications, they were seeing all this Instagram stuff of a father and son interacting and, you know, and those stories of fatherhood told through social media in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And I think they were looking for ways to showcase that kind of a role model using that medium for good, because we all know now at the end of the story, how much bad social media yeah. has done. Show me a parent who doesn't get frustrated sometimes. And I will show you someone who has a very short-term memory. Listen to some of the most frustrating moments for startup dads. You know, I'm 40. We're kind of at this place. My wife's age is, you know, in the, in, in the later stages of being able to be pregnant as per medical literature. Yeah. I think the reality is still, frankly, TBD. There's rewriting it now a bit. But yeah, we tried for years to get pregnant. And my wife had frozen her eggs previously when she was 31, so 
Huge shout out to her. Thank goodness for that choice. And huge shout out to Google for paying for that, for changing the culture beginning. I think they're at the tip of the spear on that. Yeah. And that should just be a thing, in my opinion, that anybody who wants to have a kid should be able to have a kid. And so we found a wonderful facility in Los Angeles that I'll rep right now if people are interested. They're called RMA. They have offices all over the U.S., but we found a wonderful doctor there in Santa Monica. And we got very lucky, like statistically through that whole process, like you go from the top of the funnel to the bottom and you like reduce the number of basically chances you get to be pregnant even before you begin the first embryo transfer. And so we were very lucky, very fortunate to have the first one land for us. And yeah, so then we got pregnant and I know a lot of people have difficult experiences. I want to just add that if you are hearing those and you are thinking about going through IVF, that there may be a reluctance for people like me to share the positive stories, the mm -hmm. ones that go well, because if someone's at a dinner party telling you what didn't go well, that's so unfortunate. That's so sad. And it would be very hard for someone like me to follow that story up with, well, it was <laughs> easy for us. Right. Right. So I just want to say that people tend to advertise the difficult things. And I just want to say that this was very smooth for us. And I wish anybody who goes through this process, wherever they are in it, all of the best, all of the best of luck to them. Also, part of the reason we were miserable in Mountain View is like no family to just pop on by and support and sort of take, like just give you a breather. So Sarah's mom came out for like a month and like that was great. But then you have someone living with you in a small town home for a month. So it was just, you know, it's just hard. Like I, I think that's, sorry, I know this is like a tangent from the initial question, but it's just, no. it's rough in this country where we like, you grow up somewhere and you have to move away for your career is kind of just yeah. like the default, the default thing. And it's hard because like you start a family, and you just don't have a support network around you. And I think that's been one of the nice things about remote work is like, it's given people that opportunity to move closer to families, get childcare. Like we don't even offer free childcare in the country. So like you need help, but yeah, anyway, so that was my earliest memories is like just all the screaming and, and just, I remember, I remember being really, really miserable and I've been like pretty open about this, but I was not happy. I was like very depressed for the first four months mm -hmm. after having a kid. My shit posting got really good during that time. It was like an outlet for me, but it was, it was a dark time. And there were some really challenging early times where I was, you know, trying to start a company and trying to become a father and a, a husband at the same time. And that was really hard. Having gotten through that, I'm happy to not be an old dad. I guess I'll call yeah. it that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm capable of keeping up with my kids. I think given how everything turned out, it was lucky. But there was some yeah. time, man, where it was like, I, I don't know if you had this experience, but some combination of like, holy shit, I didn't know I was signing up for all of this. And like, actually, aren't we going to make it? And that could be anything from, is my marriage going to make it? To, is my company going to make it? I yeah. always kids were going to make it because there's laws against that kind of thing. But uh, that was that was a balance that was hard to strike in the early days. And I'd say I'm still learning, but it has gotten a lot better. So, Eric, you got cancer at a pretty young age when you had a very young daughter. So... I guess, tell me about that whole experience. And I'm sure, I mean, obviously it wasn't yours alone. Sarah, you have a very big hand in navigating that. But Eric, I'm just sort of curious, like what was it like when you found out and how did that all go down? Yeah, I think the, the headline is that it was a dismembering experience for me. Looking back, it 
feel like it robbed me of many things. Like I used to have an endless amount of energy when I looked at people around the room, as well as just kind of a blissful ignorance of how fragile life can be. And so I think there's definitely a silver lining. Like some people say people that had cancer now have like a superpower in that they really understand the value of every moment in their life and make the most of it as a result. And that has been the case for me as well. But it was really hard to accept at the time and really happy that I got introduced to a, a therapist in the middle of my treatment because that really helped me think about how to get through each day mentally. Yeah. Wow. And Sarah, what was it like? I mean, how old was Bryn when you found out that Eric had cancer? Bryn was less than a year old, I feel like around nine months old. But he was actually sick, like, I think starting around when she was six months old. And it took like three months of not knowing what was wrong with him. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And there was like more and more doctors that didn't know and gave him different antibiotics. And so it was not like, okay, he was living his life fine. And then the next day he had cancer. Like right. the diagnosis felt like that, but it was already like really impacting our lives because we didn't know what was wrong with him. And like it was starting to become like, okay, I need to like take time to focus on this because it's yeah. like trying to navigate the medical system when someone's getting sicker and you don't know what's wrong with them, like is a, a full-time job. So yeah, I mean, like Eric always jokes with me, like I shouldn't get to talk about how hard it was. Because <laughs> you didn't great. have like, the cancer, yes. It wasn't anywhere near as hard for me. I did not have cancer, but I do feel like I had the same realization about life and how fragile it is. And also, like, I get to reap some of those same benefits of, like, now really nothing phases me. We've had so many ups and downs with Winnie, ups and downs with our kids, and, like, all of them feel really minor. Like, even COVID was like, okay, so we have to be locked in our house for two years and, like... Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it just it didn't have the same like I think a lot of people with COVID, it was like the first time their life was really disrupted. And I was like, oh, this is kind of nice. Like, not only am I suffering, but everyone around me is like, I'm not alone this time. <laughs> like, right. We get to do it with everyone. The whole planet. <laughs> yeah, because I kind of felt like with cancer, it was like our lives like stopped. Like we had to like just focus on this one thing, which was getting Eric better. And like everyone else got to go on with their life and do things normally. And, and we had like a year of just like hell. And, you know, a lot of people have it much worse and like have many years and, and don't make the recovery that Eric has. So, you know, I think we're really lucky, but it was also like a really shitty year. Yeah, I can imagine. If somebody's listening to this who maybe is going through a similar thing, where they've just gotten some serious diagnosis or maybe they have a loved one that has cancer, maybe it's a spouse or something like that. When you look back on this, and obviously Eric emerged successfully on the other side, but like what you had a young kid, you probably felt like you weren't done having a family. Like what was a sort of family planning or that kind of process like to you know, I guess prepare for the future. What do you do when that happens and you're like not done having a family yet? 
Yeah, like Sarah mentioned, she really took over the reins even before I was officially diagnosed. And one of the best things and decisions she ever made was, you know, finding out that it's important to freeze your sperm if you're a guy before you go through chemotherapy, which surprisingly, even at an institution like UCSF, apparently isn't something that is information that is volunteered unless you ask about it. Interesting. Um, and, you know, when you sign the paperwork to have chemo, it's, you know, a lot of fine print, but, you know, you're saying they're not responsible for your fertility being affected. But when you ask the doctor, they're like, eh, 50-50, like, you'll probably be fine. Yeah. Well, when we tried to have our second child, turned out my sperm count was basically zero, mm. which was a shock to me based on how the doctors had prepared me. And so, thank God. Sarah had taken the initiative because otherwise we couldn't have followed through on our family plan. Yeah. I imagine, Sarah, you were all over the research. I could just think about what my wife would do in that situation. I was really focused on like Eric just getting treatment. And I yeah. really wasn't thinking about like having more kids. I mean, I was overwhelmed with the one I had. It was actually like a friend who suggested it to me. And then kind of gave me the information of like, here's the clinic at UCSF. You can actually just call them because it's actually like if you're going through fertility struggles, it can be very challenging to get an appointment, can yeah. take many months. But if you are about to go through cancer treatment, like any fertility clinic will fast track you, which is an important thing to know because I was yeah. kind of overwhelmed by like, well, how am I even going to get in and get an appointment? Because he was set to start chemo immediately. Like there was mm -hmm. no... Sometimes with other forms of cancer, they need to do surgery first or other treatments. Like this was not the case here. So I was just like, it's too logistically overwhelming for me to figure out. I need to just get the treatment as soon as possible. He needs to live and like all this other stuff is not important. But it was actually a friend who like had done it at UCSF and put me in touch and we got fast tracked. It was literally the next day in time for his chemo to start. And the other thing is like, you know, we were really fortunate that we could just pay for it. There are resources, especially if you have cancer, to pay for this kind of treatment. But I also like didn't have the time or energy or mental brain space to figure yeah. that out. So we just paid for it. It can be a huge expense and a lot of people don't have the resources to just fork that over. Our youngest, we found out when he was 18 months that okay. he was on the autism spectrum or started showing signs that he was autistic. And so I started, you know, going through the testing and everything like that and got that confirmed. And the timing, it was super weird because, you know, shortly after we got all the diagnosis and everything, we went into lockdown for COVID. Oh, gosh. And so kind of two observations that came from that or unique aspects of that. So one is that we started getting therapy on a regular basis, speech therapy, behavioral therapy, which immediately started having a really great impact. So we've been, you know, very blessed in a lot of different ways in terms of what he's capable of doing and how much he's grown and all of those types of things. But it just became an exponential addition in terms of the calendar, like complexity of everything. But because of COVID, so it was like crappy in the sense that two pretty important years of his life, he really was just socializing with his sisters, no one else. And so like, you know, 
one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people on the spectrum is the ability to socialize and like understand social cues and things like that. So we're like not getting those reps for him to the degree we wanted to, to not know what that was going to look like. But in a weird way, like because we were contained, like he's just Archie to us. Like there wasn't a sense of like, oh, our child is dealing with something different than other kids because it's just like this is just our third kid and like we're our family and all that kind of stuff. And so it was actually just about seven months ago that he started going to preschool that we started running into situations where it's like, oh, wow, we have to advocate for him in like wildly different ways than we have to advocate for our two daughters. And so it kind of allowed us to ease into that transition of what are those unique, uh, unique work that we have to give to him so that he can live as happy and healthy of a life as possible. It wasn't a quick decision. I think even before you know, Louis was born in 2016. I thought that there were possible like outcomes that could lead this way. And you know, when you're not sleeping, when you have another like child around, like getting out of this constantly reactive parenting tactical mode is almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So we had therapy. We had you know a joint therapy for years working on these things. So we also have very different communication styles and tend to get in the same kind of dynamic that. You know, a lot of couples do like one person is avoidant, one person is anxious, and this sort of spins into all of your all of your problems, all your like, challenging conversations and that kind of stuff. So we were well, well aware of that. We, we knew what they were, we knew when they were happening, and the question is like, can we turn this around? Can we like find ways to repair you know difficulties when they happen, or are we losing our ability to repair? So by the time we did decide to separate, it was basically like okay. We were co-parents, you know, there was the romantic relationship, there was the working relationship because we had the business together, there was the financial, you know, relationship of like owning a house together and that kind of stuff. It came down to like, okay, is it possible to save the co-parenting and the business and the financial <laughs> relationships that we have by letting go of the romantic one? Because we don't want to be bad parents to our kids. We're both good parents. We're both able to do that right now. But there's a chance that we could destroy all of our different sort of relationships with each other if we don't do this. And so the separation was done as a bit of an experiment of like, you know, maybe if we're separated for a while, we can rebuild and reconnect on other ones. And so that's sort of like the spirit that it was done in. And I think after doing that, we realized, no, this is probably better than before. So let's continue going this route. You know, it was not that rational and cool. It was definitely like a lot more, a lot more ups and downs and lots more like really strong emotions in there. But, you know, at the end of the day, like we are here a couple of years later, like we still talk to each other very amicably. We still, you know, love each other. We still are great parents for our kids. So I, on that level, I think it was a success in terms of like, we live in a world now where lots of configurations of relationships are possible. And so we should take advantage of that and be like, okay, well, let's design the relationship that's going to work best for our interests. And if our interests are to keep co-parenting at the level that we are, like we don't want to create this you know, sort of divide at the level of parenting. So I think that was part of it. Maybe I'm on the more analytical side of this, where I, w- I would describe it that way. She would probably describe it differently, but that's sort of how sure. I how I tell it. How did you talk to your kids about it when you came to that decision? Yeah, so 
we talked to Nico first, had like an hour with him to sort of tell him that I was moving out. And we did this in, in partnership with our therapist too. Like, how do we talk to our kids about this? Because sure. this is where we could really mess things up. Um, and you, it's not like you have a lot of experience in this area, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> There's only like, yeah. all the all the experience comes from like pop culture and just like bad, right. like bad right. representations and fiction and, and TV and movies. Because my parents never separated and Kellyanne's parents separated when she was like three and mm -hmm. her mom remarried. So like, it was different. So having that conversation was like, took a couple of weeks of planning, <laughs> like both on terms of like, how do we know what to say? And then how do we do this without like triggering ourselves somehow throughout this conversation so that we can, I think we over-prepared for it, honestly, like Nico's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Louis was more confused because he was younger and didn't see as much of the conflict that we were having. So Nico would be like, oh yeah, I see you guys fight. You know, I see. Right. Whereas Louis is more like, doesn't. So he was more confused. He probably took more talking to, because like, even after I moved out, he's like, why can't you move back in? And it's really hard to explain to a four-year-old these kinds of things, especially when you're trying to protect him from him <laughs> also. Mm -hmm. So it's opened and closed a couple of times over the last couple of years. I think he gets it now. I, I mean, now the memories are further in the past. So it seems like on addition to the pandemic and everything else, it's sort of been turned upside down. Like this is just another, mm -hmm. there was actually a funny moment about a year into it where he's like, well, when are we going to get our next house? Like, yeah. Cause like we were in one house, then we had two houses and now I want a third house. So I was like, that's not how it works where like every year it's a new house. <laughs> oh, kids are so, it's so funny how their brain works though. Right? Like, yeah. To him, that's very logical. Like we're mm -hmm. just accumulating houses as we yeah, go. Yeah, this is about like expanding the empires. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be that fortunate and have multiple yeah. real estate, multiple houses in Berkeley. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all this. By the way, this is stuff's not particularly easy to to talk about or share. I wanted to ask you if you had any advice for anybody who might be going through something like this themselves. I obviously. Like you mentioned, you don't have any real experience in this the first time you're going through it. So, you know, if you could kind of rewind time and talk to Buster two years ago, you know, what would that conversation be like? What would you tell yourself? Yeah, I would say joint therapy is a really good idea. <laughs> like, every, like regardless of everything else that was happening, like having something stable, like another perspective to access was like really crucial because so much of this stuff ties deeply into our senses of identity and our senses of self-worth and like judgment and like it can get and mental health, like all these things that yeah. I think I feel lucky to have, you know, not everyone can afford it, but like, I think there are options, you know, some therapists will do signing skills and that kind of thing. But if the <laughs> resistance to therapy is about the purpose and not the cost, then I would say like, find somebody. <laughs> and then another big part of it is this tendency for us to always sort of look ahead and sort of not be able to imagine different situations and to look behind and to think that everything that happened was inevitable. So I think both of those things are dangerous. Like when we were in talking about separation, separation wasn't inevitable. It was one of many options. You know, we could have moved somewhere else. We could have changed living arrangements. We could have like hired a nanny. Like there's many options. So you have to think that like the time spent working through these options wasn't time wasted because of where you ended up because there's a tendency to think like, well, we ended up here 
all those years of therapy were wasted, right? Which is not, it's not true. It's like you don't know the outcome. And part of the hope is that you find the outcome that fits the situation best. And sometimes that takes time and it might take time to even be able to see it because there's all of these different, like when you're in the moment, it feels permanent. It feels disastrous. It feels like everything is falling apart, but that's not where you're going to be always. And so I think trusting that time changes things, that space changes things, that different dynamics can be established. I would tell myself that more. I think that was something that is really hard to do in the moment, at least for me it was, to feel like that there is only one outcome and that everything that doesn't acknowledge that as quickly as possible was a waste. And I think I sort of alluded at this, but I think that we should embrace this opportunity in our culture to have many different kinds of relationships with people. I'm not saying that that means you have to be like polyamorous or queer or to have like multiple part, I don't know, whatever, like there's, it sort of alludes to like these, all these different configurations that can be, you know, maybe off-putting or scary to some people, but I think that those are just some, and you're going to find the, the options that feel right for you. And you're going to find options that don't feel right for you. But the only way to really understand what those options are is to be open to them, to try experimenting with different things and seeing if they stick or not, because it's not just together or apart. There's lots of other options and our culture today is also like open to these other options. So that's a good advantage that we have that we should use. Wow. Even if you end up going down one of the more tried and true paths. A year or two ago, you were t- tweeting about something around systems for getting everything done. And that was your, seemed to me to be a little bit of your kind of cancel culture moment because you had this tweet thread about getting a lot of things done and your systems and things like that. And you didn't say a whole lot about your wife in that tweet thread. Now, in this conversation, just in the few 20 minutes that we've been talking, you've talked about your wife a lot and the partnership that the two of you had. So I imagine that was really more of an oversight on your part and it wasn't an intentional omission. But I'm curious what you learned about that experience. And this probably comes back to the magic pill thing too. But what did you learn about that experience of kind of putting yourself out there online, getting a whole bunch of feedback? I mean, it was quite quite a viral moment, but not in a good way for you, I think. Yeah, certainly. I mean, definitely it's a moment that kind of has kind of been on my mind probably ever since. I would definitely say I went away with a certain amount of trauma from when that happened. And the simple reason being that when I wrote it, I just put this, you know, at the end, I was at very end, the very end, I was mentioning, oh, you know, like my wife has given me this amazing life and all I can do is best is man- manage my time to kind of serve her best. You know, that was kind mm-hmm. of, but it, it's that complete lack of understanding that the way I had positioned the rest of the stuff, it seemed like, you know, here's this amazing person. He gets all of this stuff done. And he has a system and that's because of the system. He's got all these amazing things and you can have it too. And, you know, so from an outsider perspective, you just go, this is the biggest a-hole in the universe who thinks, you know, he is uh, the superhero who does it all and doesn't even acknowledge anybody that's around him. And I think the, that just hit me so hard because it is absolutely not the way that I've ever seen myself. I would probably yeah. definitely suffer from an inferiority complex and think like always like there's somebody in any room I enter. 
I will always assume any conversation, I mean, I'm always assuming the other person is smarter. The other person knows more, they're more articulate. You know, it might be a language thing too, you know, whatever it is. And I'm always kind of trying to probably prove myself or thinking that I'm not good enough. So to be then, you know, for that to be flipped on its head, to be presented as this really arrogant person, it just it was horrendous because I just thought like, how could somebody get me so wrong and how could so many people get me so wrong? So that was, that was one element that was really hard to take because it wasn't the way I saw myself. The second element that was incredibly hard was, I think there were people that were kind of reading and saying like, you know, he probably didn't mean it that way. It doesn't read well, you know, should have said it differently, but you know, learn your lesson. But then there was kind of vitriol and hatred that went with it. So the sheer amount of DMs that told me that, you know, my wife should leave me. I'm probably cheating on her, you know, my kids will hate me forever. I should kill myself. It just like, it went to such a wow. like dark place and just thought, wow, like this is insane. And obviously afterwards you learn from the fact that, you know, a lot of times when people put so much hate on you, it is something within them that isn't right. And they're just yeah. projecting, but taking that much heat, tens of thousands of people liking polls saying like, you are a piece of garbage. That isn't easy to take. That was yeah. really horrendous. At the same time, you know, we're talking about living online is the people that I found through writing, the people that knew me that then DM'd me, texted me, we went on calls that said, look, we know this isn't you and we're really sorry. That was a fantastic moment. But I think the hardest thing was probably standing in the, in the kitchen on probably day two or three when this happened. So this happened and I, I didn't tell my wife, right? Because mm -hmm. she wasn't really aware of any of the kind of online stuff. And I was standing in the kitchen and I just felt like crying because I felt I, I had failed my family, I'd failed my job, you know, like being portrayed in such a light that there was no coming back from this. And what have I done? You know, am I going to be laid off? You know, what am I going to, what's my wife going to think of me? You know, so many people say that about me. And I became a really shy, timid person for a few days. And my wife knew something was up with me. And mm -hmm. she said, always like, what's up? And I said, oh, no, everything is okay. But in the meantime, I was living with just like heart racing the whole time. Like I couldn't sleep for three days straight because my heart was racing so hard that I was not able to sleep. And then I, you know, checked messages at nighttime, which is like really stupid, but you know, just go online and just see more hate. And it's just like, yeah. it was so, you know, I would drop the kids off at school and I would just assume everybody had seen it and everybody mm. hated me, you know? So it was just like, it was pretty intense. But when I told her, so I think I posted on the Tuesday and I told her on the Friday. So it took a few days mm -hmm. and then I broke down. So I cried and broke down. And then, you know, she looked at it and she just, she couldn't be, she was so angry at everything people were saying because she knew me and she knew this isn't yeah. like, they're talking about somebody else. Like, why are you even taking it so serious? Because we know this isn't true. You know, we're very much a team and I very much see her as the, the top parent in our uh, family. So that was fantastic to have her backing and just saying, look, you know, I've read some of these comments, you know, some of them are complete BS and the other stuff, you know, you know, people are also seeing that there's a different side to it and people are really trying to screw this up and comments of people saying like, oh, let's go in and, you know, create more mayhem. <laughs> but it's just yeah. when you, I think no human is made up to receive that much hate in one go, especially yeah. if it wasn't intended. Like I wasn't intending to put myself out there or saying anything negative, you know, because there was single women and single moms coming in and it wasn't meant to offend anybody in any way. Yeah. So it went, it went bad, very badly. But so you were asking what have I learned from it? I think what I've learned from it is really trying to make sure that I present the real picture every time and yeah. not assume that people know because I've written something last week that in the new post, they know what I think. So I need to always just make sure the full picture is presented, which is right. Yeah. 
Well, it's also really interesting because it means you have to almost, you know, walk on eggshells a little bit or kind of over explain a lot of things just to make sure that you don't get caught up in this kind of hurricane of anger online, because that's the, unfortunately, the kind of thing that gets fueled on the internet. It does seem that you've recovered from it because the reason I discovered you was your more recent post. And I had no idea about the old stuff that happened until I went spelunking in the history prepping for this show. So I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I know it's super hard to reflect on that stuff. And thank you for doing it. And thank you for sharing the lessons that you learned. Yeah, sure. Again, if it helps anybody, you know, listening to this and, and just thinking about, you know, how can they portray themselves? And equally, I've spoken to people who have received, you know, kind of backlash for other things. You know, it's great to, to know that there's a way through. And for me, it was very much thinking that hopefully there is a part of the message that can help people because that was the whole point of sharing online. And yeah. There were people saying, look, please, you know, keep sharing. There's stuff to learn because there's so much I learn from other people every single day uh, from all the yeah. walks of life. And that's the beauty of social media. Frameworks aren't just for building companies and products. They're also for parenting. Here are the best frameworks shared by startup dads. I, your co-founder, Richard, have irrevocable guidelines around my family. Every year we go to Priest Lake for a week and that's a thing that's going to happen. I'm not going to work on nights and weekends unless you need me to on a specific project. Like. All those rules that honestly used to piss me off, man, because when you're at an early stage and you're like, well, we're co-founders and I feel like I'm working harder than you, it's a terrible feeling. In this second shot on goal and this business feels categorically different in a lot of ways, I'm just adapting his, you know, his habits yeah. and my family's a lot better off because of it. I think it's a principle that I've kind of adopted for life. And now I'm going to go back to the second book also I mentioned, Jocko, mm -hmm. who has just on, on me and kind of my life has been a, a huge influence, absolutely huge influence. And I think that's one of the beauties of the kind of modern age that we live in, that we're actually able to, I think, assemble like mentors or a group of mentors that will never meet us. Now, they don't know mm -hmm. we exist, but they can still mentor us. And I've been lucky to, to have been on, on a couple of kind of group Zoom calls with him and ask him a couple of questions, which was fantastic within this kind of leadership uh, forum. Absolutely amazing. But yeah, I've just absorbed his podcast for years and years. Every morning when I'm working out, it's running. The kids, you know, that was one of the first words for some of them. <laughs> it's kind of knowing all this job on again. Yeah. So a bit obsessive, but the message is so positive. And his, one of the main messages being, you know, discipline equals freedom. And that is something that is just like translated into kind of all areas of my life, especially when it comes to time management, because time management or, or organizing your time when there is so much going on is so, so crucial. And for me, that starts also early in the morning where I know that little bit of me time that I have, which is typically that kind of between five and six thirty in the morning. That's the, the only time I have just by myself where I'm not going to be interrupted most of the time. Now having kids, <laughs> you're going to get interrupted at that time yeah. too. That's, or they've interrupted you between 2 and 4 and there is no 5 a.m. get up. So that happens plenty of times. But knowing that like being disciplined to get up then gives me, for me, it's the emotional freedom to have said, okay, I've, I've done my bit. I've done something for myself. I've worked out. I've listened to podcast, audiobook, whatever, or music, spent some time for myself, and now I'm ready to be present for the family and to serve the family, to serve the business. So that's been massive. And this approach of being disciplined in your areas in life to gain freedom, that's been massive for me, also for parenting. Yeah. We've been married for a while. I get approaching 10 years next year, but like it's just hard on a relationship because so much of our energy is poured into the kids and our jobs that 
by the end of the day, like you know, we don't have as much time to, you know, expend it on each other. And that over a long period of time can be pretty taxing and damaging to a relationship. And so we've just recently started to like build in, this is a very obvious thing, like build in date night every week where we do have a babysitter and where we do it earlier in the day. We're doing it on a Saturday. So like 4 p.m. onwards, where like we have a little bit of childcare on the weekends to help put the kids to bed. And that, I think it was a bit of a mindset shift because we were always before, it's like, well, we're working all week. We want the weekends to be all kid time. But by the end yeah. of it, we're so drained, they're not getting the best of us. And so it's like a win-win to actually be able to check out for five hours and us have a, you know, no matter what we do, it doesn't have to be anything fancy, but it's just Jenna and I every week. So I'll tell you how that's going in six months. But like, that's something that I well, feel like many people realize they should do. And we probably realize it a little bit too late, but that is, you know, one thing we're doing. So I, I think though, you got to reward the effort, not the results. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's this great book called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And what that means is if you follow a process and you keep following the process, eventually the score takes care of itself, provided it's the right process. And so we do positive affirmations and reward the process, the effort, the effort mm-hmm. involved versus saying, oh, this is so great or this sucks and you could have done better. This is great. You're trying and that's what matters. The other thing, what I realized, and it's probably my family heritage or mine and my wife's family heritage coming from Indian parents or you know Indian background, it's all about education. I used to be able to climb walls when I was a kid and a number of crazy things, but every time I was told focus on studying, focus on your math and your English and all of this, and don't bother about all of this. We don't want you to get hurt. You're going to get injured. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think to myself now, my second child, like Amelia, is everything I am. She's huge into gymnastics and climbing and all of these things. And I, I would have probably pursued acting or music or the arts, right? That was my, mm-hmm. my side, creative side. But I never had that encouragement because think about it. My parents were poor. They were trying to put food on the table and make sure we're educated. So they were worried that we go down this path and you know we're gonna end up broke, right? Yeah. And now that we have stability, my goal is to make sure our kids have great experiences, whatever they do. Doesn't matter they're an engineer or a doctor, as long as they create and have great experiences and are happy, they'll find fulfillment. And so one is that positive affirmation on the effort, like rewarding the effort, more importantly, and encouraging things that bring them joy. Because a lot Mm -hmm. of what we chase in life, especially in the Western world, actually the whole world, is society's definition of success. What always comes from the negotiable. I can't work in the city, but I need to take this job in the city, so I'm going to live in the burbs and commute even if it damages my quality of life. Or, Mm -hmm. you know what? I can't eat healthy. I can't work out. So I'm just going to eat this crap. Everything starts with a negotiable. And I want my kids to experience non-negotiables. What are your values? And don't back down from that for Mm -hmm. any amount of money because ultimately money is no good if it doesn't buy you the things that bring you joy. Yeah. And the things meaning the experiences or the way of life, the freedom, 
kind of thing. And so we encouraged right now they're in like gymnastics and art and drama and music and dance and rollerblading, whatever it is, they do more extra activities and that fills up their life and time than school. And I, I truly feel what you do creatively outside of work, outside of your nine to five, is what makes you as a human. Because think about it. Everyone is doing one thing, going to school or doing a nine to five. How many people step out of the nine to five to make time to consistently do something else to expand their creative side? What you are in business and in life is how you expand your brains outside of the nine to five. I was lucky to have a lot of great father mentors, you know, guys I worked with at Team Rubicon who were older than me that were great fathers, in my opinion. And, you know, one of them was my COO. He's now the CEO of Team Rubicon. His name's Art okay. Delacruz. Four kids, amazing father, amazing husband. And he said, Jake, you know, people try to overcomplicate it. You know, the, the thing about being a parent is your kids at every moment of their life should just know that they're loved. Yeah. Like, if you do that, everything else falls into place. I'm like, all right. You know, there's a lot of methodologies out there, a lot of frameworks. Like, if your kids feel loved, they're going to grow up well. For me, it was really big for them to know all the time we love them. So literally in our family of four, when we leave, even leave the house, we will say, I love you every single time. And if we're in the middle of a fight, in the heat of battle, even if we're yelling, we will pause right in the middle and be like, I just want you to know, I love you. We're having this fight, but I love you. And then we'll go right back to it. And that they said was really important to them. Another one that we discovered over time, which I think all of us learn, whether it's at home or elsewhere, you only control how you show up. You don't control anything else. You, you want all these things for them. It's not your choice. It's theirs. And yeah. to realize, hey, we're just, you know, Sherpas along the way. When we went from infallible to completely wrong and somewhere along the way, we're like, hey, it's their journey and we should help them as much as we can. That was aided a lot by getting a decent night's rest. That was aided by checking if they'd eaten enough mm -hmm. and things like that. Brene Brown is, <laughs> is a yeah. big help. Just she's got a lot of really great tools. Like one of the things that we've implemented successfully at times, not successfully at other times, is like she has this concept around understanding that like you as a couple have, let's say, 100% capacity of your ability to help out when you're like fully available for your children or your family and each other. And maybe collectively your household needs 150% between the two of you to be really successful. But rarely are we ever operating at 100%. And so like being able to communicate to each other to say like, hey, I'm at 30% today. If you're at 100%, like we're going to be okay. But if you're also at 30%, we need to agree that like everybody needs to treat each other with like exponential kindness right now. Schedules yeah. might have to go out the window. Let's not get too caught up yeah. because like collectively we're not at a spot to do what we believe is like our regular sustained, you know, work and effort that we wanted to put into our family. So maybe great. We're more likely to order out or have yeah. an ice cream dinner. Right. <laughs> so this is one of these frameworks that I've ported over from works personal. But the basic thinking is, given any task, right, like you're always trying to figure out how you can maybe achieve more with a certain amount of time. Like maybe there's stuff you need to get to, it's piling up, like responsibilities or things you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. But there's only so many hours in a day where you have time to do those things. So what do you do? And a delete, automate, delegate really encourages you to think about, first of all, delete, like 
is this a task I need to actually do or can I just delete the task? A really good example might be maybe you spend time checking your credit card statement every month. Maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe you can set up a rule that triggers any time there's a purchase over a certain amount that emails you. So you just delete that activity from your roster of activities altogether. Very basic example. But there are so many things that people do that can just be deleted from how they spend their time, if you really just think about it. And actually, maybe that one is a little bit of a cheat because it actually bridges a bit into automate. There's a little bit of an automation there. You could just argue, just don't do the task. You don't need to do it, maybe. Sure. So then that brings me into automate. Like, is there a way that you could, through technology or through some other system, put this thing on autopilot? So really good examples here would be auto paying your bills, right? Like, yeah. you know, I don't always practice what I preach. I still spent like 20 minutes this weekend figuring out how to pay my home insurance. <laughs> it's like, I should yeah. just put that on a automatic recurring payment. Like I have my car yeah. insurance. It's so much less effort when I just get the email from Geico that's like, hey, we're just billing your card again for another year. And I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. It's automated. Archive that email. So automate, you know, the key here is you're not actually pushing the work to another human, like you're pushing it to a system or code. And the nice thing there is you barely have to QA it. Like you don't have to keep on top of the output, making sure that person is doing what you want them to do and any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then of course there's stuff that cannot be automated. So that's where delegate comes in. And really good examples here are things like getting a cleaner around, you know, that's hours and hours of work that they're so much better at than you are. So it just makes a ton of sense or childcare really like many different forms of childcare from nannies to au pairs to daycares, but to family. But can you delegate big chunks of that time such that you get a lot of your own headspace and time back in particular, delegating things that you enjoy less that you don't mm -hmm. want to do as much or that you're less good at, even if you like it. Because that way, you know, you can get some nice like economies of scale, like yeah. specializing in areas where you're really good or where someone else may be really good. This is a, I think, a very common one. And when I call it brilliant basic, but just routine, there's a safety in routine. There's a way to survive through routine, but yeah. also a little bit of discipline, whether it's, you know, we got five minutes before we got to get out the door, everyone. So you need to get dressed. And, and it's just that consistency whether it's going down at a certain time. The, the biggest one is, you know, if it's one treat you can have per day or whatever, you got to try to stay with that. Yeah. They will rip you to shreds once they discover it's a moving target. Yeah. Consistency. Adam, it's so sweet of you to ask about frameworks because that is something that Josh absolutely has in his life and it serves us so well. And I don't understand what that means. Like if you had said to me, Carla, what sort of do you use to inspire parenting? I'd be like, yeah, that question makes a little more sense to me than frameworks. Like it's just not how my brain works. Things happen and then I respond to them. And sometimes that reaction yeah. goes well and sometimes it goes poorly, but there's no framework involved. It's just not how but the situation between my ears functions. The only reason I can ask Josh this question is because having been a product manager, mm -hmm. the world of product management revolves around, and by the way, MBA revolves around frameworks, which is like, how can I fit this situation that I'm dealing with into a thing that lets me understand it and process it and work through it? So um, I'm not saying Josh, it's a bad your... thing. It's just not how my brain works. Oh, no, I get it. I totally get it. Josh, what's your favorite parenting framework if you were to describe oh. it? My favorite parenting framework is mission, vision, strategy, which you could then decompose into objectives and key results. 
Okay. And Say more. <laughs> I'm half joking and I'm half serious. I'm probably like three quarters serious here. Okay. You know, I think about the challenge that, right, I coach product managers, right? And inevitably, people ask me the question, you know, I have a long list of things I could do. How do I prioritize them? Right. And in their mm -hmm. head, what they're thinking about is some sort of prioritization framework like impact and effort and probability and multiply things together and stack rank the experiments you could run. And I think for a lot of people, that's kind of the way they think about parenting, right? Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of things they could do, right? They could sign their kids up for music class or dance class or Mandarin or Spanish immersion. They could send their kids to the public school or the private school. They can do, you know, the fancy summer camp, the regular summer camp. They could take an adventurous vacation. They could sit on a beach in an all-inclusive resort. It's a series of kind of context-free decisions where they're trying to compare stuff against each other. Well, if we go on the less expensive vacation, then we can send our kids up for the fancier preschool, for the, you know, Spanish language immersion preschool, and those kinds of trade-offs. In product management, right, the place we get ourselves into trouble is if we don't base that prioritization exercise off of a really clear company vision and product vision, right? I mm -hmm. don't mean mission, I mean like vision. What are we trying to get to and what is our role as a family and as parents going to be in getting our kids there? And there's a thing that Carla said, I don't know, five or six years ago, which has stuck with me since. And you know what this, when you hear this, you know what I'm talking about because we talk about this all the time. It was something like, it's not our job as parents to make our kids happy. Oh, I did say that. It's a true statement. You did, say, I did that. say that. I still say that. And it's a really yeah. smart thing to think about, right? Because if you don't say that out loud, what becomes your implicit vision statement as parents, right? It's, we want to make our kids happy. We just want our kids to be happy, mm -hmm. right? I think a lot of people have said this unthinkingly out loud. And if they don't think about it, they probably actually mean it. And the framework that I have is, what are we actually trying to accomplish as parents? Mm -hmm. Right. We want our kids to be kind. We want them to be generous. We want them to be aware of their own place in the world. We want them to be independent. We want we them, want to, them to hang up their towels when they take a shower. Yes. We want that. Right. And hanging up your towels when you take a shower and putting away your laundry, right? And learning how to, in fact, do laundry and learning how to cook some meals and taking responsibility for setting the table. These are all things that make a lot of sense in the context of our family vision. And yep. for a lot of families, right, and I recognize this is fairly privileged because for a lot of families, right, what parents expect the work of their kids to be, right, is studying and activities, right, because mm -hmm. a kid's job is to prepare themselves to go to a great school and have a great career, right? Mm -hmm. And both those things are totally okay. Yes. Right? Those things are totally fine, right? Yeah. The place you run into trouble is when you don't say these things out loud. We don't express mm -hmm. that vision out loud. And because I'm really lucky to have a partner in parenting, period, and then a partner in parenting who's good at saying these things out loud and good at talking these things through with me when we go on walks, which don't have nearly as many fighting tense moments anymore as they did when we were younger. We've we're getting been better so at good at not fighting lately. We haven't fought in like three years. That's not entirely true, but it's mostly true, and I'm very proud of us, so carry on, babe. So anyway, that's a framework that I use, right? It's okay. literally the very same things, and it's no big surprise, to me at least, that the frameworks that Carla struggled with introduced in her books and in her writing prior to being a book author are ones that I carried through, not just in the family, but also professionally, right? There's an awful lot of overlap, right? Yeah. With being an exec at a company and being a parent, right? In both cases, you are the adult and you're expected to act like the adult. And that has a set of responsibilities, which only you as the adult have. 
just creating a safe space, like a a place where even when things go wrong, at least they don't feel abandoned. They don't feel like you know they're being left to their you know own fallout from whatever is happening. That's definitely the foundational framework that I have. There's a lot of other ones that I apply specifically to Nico or to Louis because I see them differently. Like I said, he needs me to pull information out of him. So creating yeah. environments where I can ask questions, but not like put them on the spot and say like, you have to answer this now, but just like every night you can ask questions and they could be as weird as you want. And just like, just let that be a tradition so they can think ahead and think, okay, well, tomorrow night I want to ask this question has been important. Whereas Louis, he will bombard you with questions. So it's not a problem to, to, to like just to create blurts out whatever's coming to mind. <laughs> yeah. For Louis, it's more like, you know, can we be like snuggle and cozy together and not have mm-hmm. to talk about things? Can we just enjoy like reading a book together? Can we enjoy, you know, eating food together, that kind of stuff that is more sort of experiential. Like, so I think my frameworks are tailored to the personalities of the kids. Another one is, this might be related to the other ones, but I don't try to understand them fully. I don't try to get ahead of their own description of themselves. Like, you know, there are lots of ways to diagnose kids with different kinds of problems, whether it's what they're eating or whether they're like have stomach issues or whether they are learning to read slowly or learning to write slowly or not drawing as much, or there's just like this world of diagnoses out there. And I've intentionally tried to avoid diagnosing things. This is a controversial one. I think even with my ex, like, you know, where she leans more towards like the diagnosing of them, I'll be like, well, you know, I am more interested in like, do they feel like they need support? If they feel like they need support, then we can go, for example, like Nico recently said, like, I think I have ADHD. And I was like, well, what makes you think that? Do you want to get tested for this? Do you want, do you need more support for this stuff? And, you know, I could try to figure this out on my own or say that's important for me to know more than it's important for him to know. But in general, I just let him, like, if he feels like there's something that he wants to understand about himself more specifically or in a more nuanced way, we have tools and, you know, doctors and people that can help us, especially at his age. I feel like I'm not going to try to force him to label himself in these different ways unless it's going to help him directly. A few things that have become like pretty standard in our world. One is what we call special time, which is basically at the end of Monday through Thursday, each kid gets a dedicated 30 minutes before bedtime where they get to do whatever they want to with one of us. And so, like, we split it. So, like, I'll do Monday, Wednesday. She'll do Tuesday, Thursday. But it's just like, great, 6.30, I'm going to do Archie's special time. And he wants to go on a walk. So we're going to go on a walk. Or he wants to watch a show. Or he wants to play a puzzle or whatever it might be. And so it's just he and I, and we'll do that thing. And then, you know, then he goes to bed. And my middle child, like, will do the same thing. And then our oldest child. And so that has been really great, I think, for all of us involved. Because the kids love it. And they make sure it happens. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's helped with various different things in terms of attention and focus and just getting to know them on an individual yeah. level. And then for us to each have like our own time with them that's not just, oh, all five of us are hanging out and right. those kinds of things. And then we do like a movie night on Fridays and then Saturdays are like, it's kind of all special time. But it's just yeah. like, that's a good forcing function to like, I got to be home twice a week at the very least. This is something that my wife actually brought into the family as a concept. It. it makes a ton of sense. It's actually something we practice. Like we've enshrined as like an operating principle at Superhuman, this idea of end-to-end ownership, right? 
What does it mean? What does it mean? Yeah, it sounds like a lot of buzzwords on the slide. So take a vertical, take any vertical that as a couple needs doing in your household. Maybe the vertical is cleaning. Maybe the vertical is food or finances. You can define a vertical as broadly or as narrowly as you want, whatever makes sense. But generally speaking, you know, there's about 20 of these verticals, maybe 15. There's a book called, I think it's called Fair Play. I might have to just mm. double check that, but I think that it actually outlines all of the verticals that might need to be taken care of. Also, The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work is another book that also has verticals listed out. They call them more like responsibilities or duties, and it's part of an exercise where you figure out like who owns what. In any case, you take the vertical, and the idea behind this thinking is that it's significantly more efficient if one person in the household fully owns that vertical end-to-end. -end. So, in our case, I'll just give you an example. I am fully responsible for everything to do with cleaning. My partner doesn't even have to think one second about anything cleaning. So that includes all laundry, all dishwasher, all cleaning the kitchen, all figuring out when our cleaner's gonna come and making sure that someone's at home to let them in and yeah. QAing the work and making sure that they get paid. Literally any removal of any trash or compost or recycling <laughs> or Amazon boxes from the house yeah. or any clutter that builds up, like that is fully in my wheelhouse. That's my end-to-end -end vertical. Wow. On the other hand, food is her vertical. I think zero seconds in a week about obtaining groceries, you know, preparing meals. That's yeah. not strictly true. I do order, you know, I do sometimes help with the cooking as like a sous chef or I like sure. order takeout once in a while. But for the most part, you know, she takes care of all food stuff. And then, of course, I'm on the other end of it, making sure that we are really tidy after dinner and that, mm -hmm. you know, after everything is done, like the kitchen's back to where it was before the meal prep started. Yeah. So you can kind of take this whole system. You can then map out all of the stuff that you need to do. And like I mentioned, there's tons of different verticals, right? Food, finance, travel, social plans at the weekend, childcare is a huge one vacation planning. There's just so many different pieces. You can figure out yeah. which bits are conceptually similar, bundle those together. And then just making sure that you've evenly or whatever split makes sense for your, you know, your situation, make sure that it's known who is owning the thing. And yeah. that way, a couple of things emerge as a result. First, everything just moves way faster. Like I can just independently make decisions about cleaning. My partner can independently make decisions about food. Obviously, you can get the other person's input if you need to, but things just happen a lot faster. Things don't like pile up or build up. Second, if a new task comes along, it's very clear who needs to take ownership of that, right? which is really helpful because those things can often just like kind of linger and fall between the cracks. And then, you know, thirdly, you can have a shared language and a framework for how you should rebalance and shuffle things if things are feeling too overwhelming for one person or if someone feels like they have loads of bandwidth and could help out on something. So, you know, we've moved tasks from one person to the other where we're like, wait, isn't this kind of part of the cleaning vertical? Like, I think you should take that. I'm like, yep, makes total sense. Like, I'd probably, you know, fold it into the same time I think about this other thing. So I am a huge advocate of this. I also speak to couples and families where they're like, you know what, we just 50-50 it, or we just kind of yeah. muddle our way through, and, you know, or we 60-60. That's another framework. It's like each yeah. person brings 60%. I love that in principle, but as an economist, right, and my partner's also studied economics at university, my brain just can't handle that. Like, right. <laughs> clearly, someone is going to be doing more and someone is sure. going to be checking. So I, I do like the sort of predefined structure that makes it a little bit clearer. Yeah, I think this is great. I've heard very few people talk about dividing up household responsibility in this way. 
And it, it sounds like a really interesting system and that's worked out super well for the two of you. So I, I suppose that the two of you have to have sort of similar standards or points of view on each other's tasks. Like what happens when there's a conflict? Let me give you an example. Yeah. Let's say you're in charge of cleaning, but you know your tolerance for clutter is maybe a little bit more than your partner's tolerance for clutter. How does that work out? Or is that something that you align on up front where you kind of know each other's expectations and standards for the thing? That's actually what defines who owns which vertical. So ah. I have a way higher standard and bar when it comes to clutter or you uh-huh. know, cleaning, and therefore I am the person who owns that vertical. She has a way higher standard for the Airbnbs and like the places we travel to and how we sure. get there. So she's the owner of the travel vertical. Like if it were left to me to book a holiday, I would book the <laughs> crappiest coach flight and just <laughs> you know rubbish Airbnb that's really far yeah. away from all the good stuff. And like yeah. we'd get there and we'd be miserable for the whole week. But like yeah. she knows to look through the, the listings and actually make sure that we get you know the amazing plan. I know to clean to a certain level, and you know, same with yeah. food. Like I'd probably be happy with takeout every day, but she wouldn't sure. be. So actually, like the person who naturally leans more towards the area means that should probably be your vertical. Now, yeah. if there are issues, right? Like there will certainly be times where she's like, "Hey, this thing is piling up. Like it's you know part of your vertical." Really, we just bring it up, right, and have like yeah. a, a sensible conversation about it. But it's so infrequent because of the aforementioned kind of like structure by design. Something that I keep thinking about is laying out your quote unquote parenting values and like yeah. align on those as a couple. And it's very similar to a company. And it's not like mm-hmm. how you're going to parent, it's the things that are most important to you that you want to you know, hopefully instill in in part on your kids, right? So an example of one that is top of mind for me is like resilience, you know, yeah, is I really would like my kids to be okay with like trying really hard things and being okay with failing and being resilient to that, right? And I think a helpful exercise is, you know, like writing those down and talking through hypothetical examples of, how you would treat a specific scenario, you know, to align on that. And so I think this ends up being important because the how of all of this and the methods to like achieve these values just is going to change, right? Just a very simple example of like how you discipline your kids, right? Is very different. It changes based on the age of the kid. It changes on the kid themselves. People respond to differently things. There's right. And so you can't really spell out the how of it. Like that's the thing that I feel like I find myself constantly having to adapt to. But I think if you have those things that you can always root back to and align on is like, actually, this is the thing that we're trying to impart and like achieve is probably helpful. Mm -hmm. Recently, we've really focused on spending one-to-one time with each of them, particularly with Leo and myself. So we found that me spending extended time with him at the weekends has really helped his overall temperament and behavior. At that age, I think, you know, male role models start to become a bit more important to boys. And so we have this regular play day at a local place called Brickies. It's basically a big place full of Lego and you book in for a couple of hours, you get given these build challenges and, you know, we get to be creative together and we get to work together on, on a challenge. So that's really fun. And as I said, in, in a fairly short amount of time, we've seen that manifest like materially 
in a noticeable way in his behavior. So, so that's been really great. Structure as well is something that we found to be very important. Again, particularly with, with Leo, he finds it a little bit more difficult to handle when things change. So we tried to help him with that just in terms of how to be more open to change. We know he finds a lot of comfort in routine. And so we, you know, we try to cater to that, you know, when we don't, we know that he'll start to feel a little bit more anxious and that starts to bleed through in, in, in how he is. So just having a a structure and a, a routine around things really helps. I definitely have some like general principles that I abide by, which is like, I give zero fucks when anyone else thinks of my parenting. So like my wife will be out and like, the baby will fall and then I'll be like, okay, so like let him fall and he'll get up. And then, you know, she'll be like, ah, but there's other parents around. Like, I'm like, who cares? Let them come say something. Like I'll argue that. <laughs> so, yeah. so definitely like, I, I think most people like after working with enough people, you generally realize that like most people don't know what they're doing or like, you don't really care about their opinion. And so it's like, why do I like, they're probably not that good at parenting. Why? Like, why would I care what they think anyway? I'm an instinctual parent in a lot of different ways. I think this is a problem a lot of the time because an instinctual parent can be a reactive parent, especially with teenagers. There's a lot to react Mm -hmm. to. There's this thing my wife says to me all the time that I try to like remember that becomes my mantra when I'm like dealing with hard situations with kids, which is like, remember you're the adult. Yeah. The kids want to drag you into their like (laughs) world, right? Even Uh a five-year-old like wants you to like react like another (laughs) five-year-old. It's like, remember you're the adult. So it's like avoid like getting into a rational argument with a seven-year-old, even a 13-year-old like, yeah, that's not the job, <laughs> you know? So yeah, yeah, remember you're the adult. That can often be very centering for me. Parents have to overcome all kinds of adversity and be advocates for both themselves and their kids. Hear how startup dads have navigated these challenges with their family. Our primary pediatrician got us to a specialist at the Children's Hospital here in Atlanta, CHOA, in their blood disorders and cancer group with a hematologist there. And, you know, he happened to be this like super specialist with this stuff. He took one look at her and said, I think she has Muckle-Well syndrome. Everything that you're telling us is symptoms align with it. Hmm. I want to do some genetic testing. I think it's this gene insurance denied like the big broader. um, Of course. He's like, I'm going to test this one gene. Yeah. And he was spot on. He's exactly right. Wow. And it's just crazy. And. At the same time, I actually had a good friend from high school that dawned on me that he was a pediatric hematologist out in Irvine, California. So I called him, was telling him this stuff like, hey, spinal tap and this. And he was like, send me all her stuff like pro bono. Let my team take a look at it. And by happenstance, his partner doctor was in a group at the doctor here in Atlanta too, mm. specializing in these things. And yeah, so she got diagnosed with Mucklewell syndrome. And very unique that we were able to diagnose it this early. A lot of times it gets diagnosed as like hives for no known reason or fevers for no known reason. It's just kind of this thing that people will deal with their whole life. And you can imagine your body being inflamed for that long. It can have other effects. It can impact your organs. Hearing loss is a common symptom and those types of things. And so luckily with her, she has a, a more mild moderate case of it. 
so she doesn't have the drastic like organ issues or joint issues that we know of. And so she's on an injectable shot. So it started out like twice a day at the house. So Becky and I had to administer that. And luckily there's another one that we could utilize. It was once every like eight weeks and now it's once every six weeks. Uh, And it was like a light switch, like literally her first shot, hives went away, fevers went away, the lethargy went away. The teachers at preschool were like, this is a completely different kid, has all this energy. And, and yeah, I don't know if we would have figured it out without being in Atlanta. Like it was, you know, it's kind of like a -a whack-a-mole game and yeah. And and it is something very rare. Like we've met one other family in Atlanta that they introduced us to the child that had it. Mm -hmm. And we're also very fortunate. A lot of times when you have this, you have other mutations with like more serious, you know, types of, you know, issues with bone deformities and being in the hospital all the time with fevers or the medicines don't work and those types of things. So I feel we're very fortunate with that aspect of it. It's interesting. I forget all the terminology this the doctor calls him high functioning which i think the autism community doesn't like that term so i think that means like type one autism is like maybe the term they're using now i don't remember the which end of the spectrum he's on but he's like on like that the first nugget of that spectrum as a little kid we always just thought he was a sensitive soul Mm -hmm. and there was like a bunch of things that triggered him and he like didn't regulate his emotions well but we thought it was like in the bounds of norm And I think my wife and I are not to sound weird or different from others, but like particularly conscientious parents. So like, I think we handled that stuff pretty well and gave him like a lot of framework for it. And then he started school at a school in Oakland that was known for being good at the socio-emotional side, which was something we had sought out. And he had some like challenges, but like they were managing it well. And then when the pandemic started, Oakland elementary school system sucks. They shut down his amazing school, public school, because most of the people who work for the district are idiots. And he had to transfer to a new school. So like his school shut down, what, six weeks after the pandemic started. So then we did remote school the next year. Um, So we like didn't meet any of those people. And then the year after that, we had in-person school. So like his interaction with kids his age was incredibly limited yeah. for that period of time. And then I remember his first day at the new school, he came home and just like hated mm-hmm. it. And then we started talking to school because there were these two kids who were like picking mm-hmm. on him and he didn't really like know how to handle it. And parents weren't allowed on campus and we didn't know any other people and we had no interaction with them, but he would come home and be like, oh, you know, uh, I couldn't eat lunch at the table because they wouldn't like make a space for oh. me. And, you know, there was this kid who was right in front of him in line and would like knock into him. And he's like, you know, and then that kid would apologize, but he would be upset. Mm-hmm. And I think probably like four or five weeks into the school year, they did it enough that he just like snapped. Mm-hmm. And so we got the call. He like punched this kid and he gotten suspended. And we we're like, what is happening? You know, just like mind blowing, but you know, like every morning he would cry mm-hmm. about having to go to school and we we're like trying to figure out what to do about it. The pandemic was super messed up and like big emotional childcare yeah. crisis. So like, we're like trying to find doctors to talk to him and 
you know, like a lot of those people like weren't working or had, you know, like it's like October and they're like, we can make you an appointment in February, which feels like or we can do it over zoom. And you're like, they're not quite the same as seeing them in person, you know? And it was really interesting because like we ended up doing an online appointment for like 50 minutes. We had a bunch of paperwork we had to fill out with and like 40 minutes into after talking to him, I sent him out and talked to us and like, we think your kid has autism. And we're just like, what? you know, like 50 minutes on the phone and you're like, yeah. going there. and then a couple of weeks later, the school came back after doing an assessment and said, like, we also, we think he has autism mm-hmm. and we're like, okay. Like, so we like started to figure out and a lot of those pieces matched like behaviors mm-hmm. we had, but like lucky for us, like a lot of the mitigations they talk about are things we'd like naturally done and environments we had like naturally put him in but some of the stuff in the pandemic and the situation i think had been specifically bad for him and then his lack of you know social awareness and capability and ability to handle like social adversity and control reactions to it had sort of just like snapped sure but once we had the autism diagnosis we started getting support from the school and that like was night and day going from like no support at school to support at yeah. school. We like ended the school year on a decent trajectory. The first four days of school this year are like completely different from yeah. last year, but still not like it was before the pandemic. You know, like I think he has deep trepidation and fourth graders are also horrible people, like probably the worst, you know, like the next four years are real hard yeah. for people without social yeah. skills, but I think being able to have like a name for not calling him a sensitive soul, but realizing he has like neurological differences yeah. and you have to like have different expectations and manage them in different ways was powerful for us. Cause we like, were able to like put words to things and find more techniques for dealing with mm-hmm. stuff. But also like telling people that your kid's kind of sensitive, they're like, Oh, whatever, right. you know, you shouldn't act like that. But telling someone your kid has autism and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah that explains why this thing happened. And I, they're like so much more forgiving or willing to like support us through that process. So actually the diagnosis has been like a real blessing. My son went through several preschool transitions. Mm-hmm. Archie's gone through one at least. I mean, it's devastating when it happens, but it's actually for the best, right? Yeah. So. I mean, it's not too unlike finding the right job, right? You got to right. find the right fit for what you're looking for, what your needs are, like what's going to fit your commute and schedule and all of those kinds of things. And so our middle child was at a school that we'd planned on having Archie go to, and then it closed down right as she was leaving it. And so that's when he would have started. And so, you know, COVID we're like, Hey, let's just not worry about preschool right now for a little while. We're around like, we'll just, you know, have him work on things here and not even put in the picture of like figuring out vaccines and preschools and everything like that with him. And so we waited a little while, and then when we decided, like, okay, it's time, we realized, like, oh, crap, now we're way behind the eight ball of, like, getting him into preschool because everyone's on wait lists for, like, a year from now and those kinds of things. And right. so part of it was that we ended up taking one of the – of kind of our shortened list, the, the one we could get into, like, as its first one, which was a bit more of an in-home care. And, you know, we went through a pretty extensive interview process kind of for them to where we actually, like, walked them through, like, hey, here are the tools, here are his specific – like challenges that he has. Here's how we manage them at home, all that type of stuff. And then what we found is that at the end of preschool every day, we would get really, really generic feedback that was like, he had a hard day today. <laughs> like, well, I don't have a video of it. And so I don't know, like, 
he, I have 20 different tools that I use to help him with his day. Like, can I teach you one of them? But a hard day doesn't help me. Or it'll be like, he pushed a kid or something like that. And it's like, okay, can you kind of just share with me like what happened before he pushed that kid? Because like for him, it's, you know, something like a timeout isn't an effective way to help him learn that like you don't do that anymore because he just thinks it's part of the game, right? For him, it's more about like, well, how do we make sure that scenario doesn't happen or he knows other things he could do in those scenarios because most of the time with that it's like he just wants to play with someone and is looking for a way to get their attention and so it's like well i don't know if that happened in the middle of lunch i don't know if it happened in the middle of you know play time or when you're transitioning like not giving me those details isn't helpful for us and so we would have to just like fight to get really quality feedback which for our daughter is like a hard day was not that big of a deal to have to figure out because we're like, oh, well, you're probably well-equipped to deal with a kid with a hard day, but you're clearly not well-equipped to handle my autistic son when he has a hard day because it seems like you're maybe making it worse or like you're not giving him the space or whatever. Like you're not utilizing the tools, right? And I just don't know because I'm blind to it all. And so it was just like two months worth of us being like looking and asking for just like, we're giving you everything, you know, I'm printing out things that I'm laminating and giving them to you as tools. I'm doing exercises with him at home to be more prepared for these moments. And I'm still just getting really vanilla feedback from you. And that's not a way that I'm going to be able to either help him or more important, I need to help you know how to like work with my son. And so now the school that we're at, like it was not only refreshing to find another school that we really liked relatively quickly but like immediately the teachers at his current school were just like hey we tried these three tools today two of them worked one of them didn't or hey this is happening like here's what we're thinking do you have any idea it was just like it was a collaboration to help him to like be successful versus what felt like very shame like we felt a lot of shame it was really hard to be just told your son's not doing good or he's having this challenge but not getting details because then you're just like Am I failing? Like, he loves school. He was so excited for school. So then I'm just like, oh, my God, is school not going to work? Like, is this Mm going to be the kind of thing that I I don't know if a traditional preschool is going to be a successful environment for him? And knowing how excited and happy he was to be there is just like, it's crushing to go through that kind of stuff. And so, like, those are examples of having to, you know, prioritize, like, what he really needs to communicate with people, not be shy to state clearly what you need out of them and not be shy to like change if it's not working. Like we're at least, you know, if you're living in any kind of decent sized market, you've got choices and opportunities that you don't have to feel stuck in something that's not working. One of the most beautiful things about children is this color blindness, Mm. right? They go to their classroom and they're around folks from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds and they just don't see it. They just see another little person there. And that's, that's incredible. We have started to teach the kids a little bit about their heritage, about, Mm -hmm. you know, where their great grandfather came from, which was Jamaica. And I designed a little poster with Leo on the computer on his, on his door and, like started to tell him a little bit about Jamaican culture and introduced him to reggae music. And, oh, cool. 
And so on his poster, he wanted a picture of Bob Marley and him standing there and a map of Jamaica and pointing to the point on Jamaica, Savannah Lamar, where his, his great grandfather was from and the Jamaican flag and stuff. And he's got that on his door. That's his door sign now. This is oh, Leo's cool. room and so on. So, so we started kind of helping them understand some of that. Ella's a little bit too young. She's still just mainly about princesses, but yeah. There's a group called Cayman Heavy Pages to the Service. It's a Facebook group. And they also host in-person conferences three or four times a year. And like a lot of, you know, surrogacy companies, agencies, IVF clinics, et cetera, they all come to advertise themselves at these events. And so they were having one in San Francisco, like January, February, 2017. And so I was like, I'm going to go to like, you know, learn about this. And I was actually not ready at that point to like, let's go pull the trigger because, you know, ship was going through a pretty rough journey. I'm like, hey, let's figure this out first and then talk about this. But he's like, well, it's going to take forever. Like, you don't have a full condition of how long it's going to take to do this. And so he went and met all the different agencies and whatever, and, and it was very helpful because you kind of can evaluate, you know, who's the right partner for you and, and how it should work. And then, you know, he really drove it from there because, again, I was like a little resistant in 2017 to kind of move quickly on some of these things. But of course, I'm yeah. really happy that he did because in hindsight, it took way longer than you, you think it would, right? So like January 2017, our kids were born in September 2017. 19, right? So it's like two and a half years plus wow. to get to children. And our journey was actually like fairly simple. We didn't have a lot of hiccups uh, along the way. Wow. Uh, a lot of other people have a lot more hiccups uh, along the way. So you kind of you know, have to look for a, an egg donor, which is in our case, at least it was probably the most challenging piece because we really wanted an egg donor who was very academically inclined in a strong way. And the whole process isn't set up to do that. Like the entire process is for what does the egg donor look, look like, not like what is the oh. academic background, you know, intellectual background of the egg donor. And for us, like looks were very secondary. The other yeah. factors were a lot more important. And so, you know, initially you go through all these agencies and you look for egg donors, you get kind of depressed because you're like, wow, I can't find who I need. Then we finally were recommended an agency that's doesn't let you into the list of people they have until you pay some money. So it's like a more oh. selective list of donors. And so there we were able to find a donor that we loved. And, and the donor has, again, being very careful in what I'm saying, but has some level of post-Soviet background uh, like I do. So, mm -hmm. you know, her family is originally from the Soviet Union. She was um, born in the Soviet Union. So that was interesting because like there was going to be a little bit of more of a connection there. And um, she had also done uh, this before. And so she was a proven donor, which was really helpful. So we signed her up. Um, and like, you know, you had to move really fast and think how we did were because like within a day of signing her up, two other people expressed an interest in working wow. with her as well. So she was like a very in-demand donor. So that worked out really well. And then you concurrently like apply to look for surrogates, which has to be the much more time-consuming process, but less stressful because eventually you can get that. Um, I think when we did it, it took us nine months, which, you know, with the two surrogates at the same time, reasonable amount of time for during the pandemic, the, the periods increased dramatically. Like I've had friends wait for mm. over two years and then I think now it's getting better. But it's, you know, obviously, you know, there is some money exchanged for surrogacy, sure. but like the amount of work that these women do kind of for you, if you can even call it work, right, is so significant. Like no amount of money can really, you know, pay for what you're getting from them. And there's yeah. a definite like selflessness to this. And, you know, you discover some people like really like being pregnant. And they tell you, so yeah. I, I actually like being pregnant. Like that's not what you expect most of the time. But <laughs> some people really do enjoy it. And so like there's a little kind of, I think, 
like get pregnant and surrogates as a confronting circles uh, on that front. And so yeah. we, you know, we had two wonderful surrogates who, you know, did an amazing job for us and are obviously super grateful for what they're able to, uh, to give us because you can't really put a price uh, kind of on that. And so, you know, we found these two surrogates in kind of July, August, 2019. And then there's some work with the clinic to get ready. Our embryos were already ready. So we, we went, had gone through a donation process and creating embryos, et cetera. And we have a, a lot of embryos actually still frozen if we wanted more kids. And so then transplants happened in, in early December. And then we were actually in Thailand for Christmas vacation when we found out that, you know, both of them had worked and kind of everything else was history after that. Wow. What a process too. And so you mentioned two and a half years and that's at the lower end of the spectrum of what it can take yeah. people. That is impressive. The resolve that it takes to kind of go through that whole process. There are now groups that are trying to help you do it more easily, but back then there weren't as many. I mean, there's now a couple of startups that have tried this, but even still, it's like, it's a just, you know, very manual and very individual process, right? Like, you know, you meet a surrogate and okay, she likes you and you don't like her for whatever reason, or you don't, you, you like her, but she doesn't like you. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of surrogates don't want to actually be service to gay parents. They only want to be service to straight parents. Of course, like that's, you know, limits mm -hmm. selection kind of even more. And there's geography, like, okay, where do you want the surrogate to be? Like for us, it was important for them to be within, you know, reasonable closeness to us. Turned out actually, it didn't really matter. We thought that was a really big deal, but yeah. it turned out it actually wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But then you also consider like, what states do you want to do this in? California is an awesome state to do because you can do what's called a pre-birth order. So you can be declared to be the parent of the kid prior to the kid being even born. So when you, sh oh, uh, when you show up at the, at the hospital, like it's very clear, you are the parent and then this is your kid, et cetera. Like it's very structured, which for us matter a lot, right? In a lot of other states, you do a post-birth order where like, yes, it's everybody decided, but a judge has to stamp paperwork after the baby is born, which like, you know, can give you a little bit of heebie-jeebies about like, are you actually the parent of the kid or not? Sure. Now, like, yes, one of the dads will be because he's biologically the parent as well, but, but what about the one it's not, et cetera. So California is a great state to do it in, but that also limits your choices, right? Et cetera. So, you know, it's a long process and very arduous. And it's also very costly because all of this is done kind of out of pocket expenses, right? So if you are a, you know, straight couple or, you know, a, a lesbian couple that's trying to have kids through, with IVF involved, insurance will cover some parts of the cost, mm -hmm. assuming you have insurance that does that. But if you're a gay couple, even if you have insurance that covers IVF, you actually can't use it because you are not the recipient wow. uh, of the IVF. It's the surrogate uh, who's the recipient of the IVF. And then on to like medical expenses are generally tax deductible above a certain dollar amount for people. So if you are engaged in IVF and you're paying out of pocket, you can most likely deduct all that from your taxes. But if you're a gay couple, you can't because they're not regarded as your medical expenses. They are the service oh. medical expenses. And so wow. the cost on surrogacy is in, insanely high. And again, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've, I've had a, a, a very good career and, and, and we could afford to do this. But for a lot of people, it's a massive constraint on in being able to do it because it's so expensive. This is very top of mind because I just yeah. spent an hour this morning with our insurance broker talking about how can we potentially get this included in Grindr's health insurance because I think if oh. one company should like figure this out, it's Grindr, given that, you know, we're in the business of creating yeah. love among gay and bi men. And so we, yeah. we, internally, we should like solve this and then hopefully we can push uh, other people to solve this as well. Advocacy, I think, through this process has been super hard for us mm -hmm. because we are 
rich, white, cisgendered people in Oakland, California, diverse mm-hmm. place. My wife's actually from South Africa. I grew up there during the apartheid. Mm. And I think really important to her that our kids grew up in a racially diverse place. And like, yeah, I think she feels some level of like, you know, as a complete child, didn't totally understand what was going on around her. Mm. But I think feels like a, doesn't want her kids to grow up anything like that. I think if there's like one thing we want is for our kids to be good humans. So you know, like important for us that like our kids go to public school and they participate in the process and they're like around other people who are different from them. So then when your kid's having trouble at school, at a public school, advocating for them feels weird. Yeah. Right? Cause you're like, I don't want resources to go to my kid. Cause that kind of like disagrees with almost like my politics. Yeah. But at the same time, I think like recognizing that there's a standard set of things that are supposed to happen for neurodivergent kids like advocacy also an interesting word like i don't know if you know this but there's a whole class of mostly ex-lawyers who act as what they call advocates in the united states Mm. and their job you pay them like lawyer hourly rates to help bust through the red tape of trying to deny special needs kids the support they deserve in schools and then so like our friend like introduced us to this advocate who wanted like $250 an hour to help us like wow. get our kid the support they were supposed to from school. And we we're like, but if we didn't have that money, like what support would they get? So like we felt we actually decided we couldn't do that. Like we felt uncomfortable yeah. going through that process. But that's like the norm, you know, that like that's how most people do it. Instead, we figured out how to do all that stuff. And there's so much process. So like for example, a friend of ours had a bunch of issues. So there's this thing called an IEP at the school. Yeah. You can't ask for an IEP. You can ask for an assessment for an IEP. So right. if you ask for an IEP, the school says, like, we don't think that's appropriate. If you ask for an assessment for an IEP, they are required to respond to that by yes. law. So if you don't say the word assessment, you don't get support. Yeah. And in fact, if you ask for an assessment, they start by default giving you an academic. There are different types of assessments. So they'll pick a type of assessment. So like one of our friends had a kid with challenges, found out they needed to ask for an assessment, asked for an assessment, but they only did an academic assessment and the kid's doing okay academically. And then they found out they had to ask for a behavioral assessment, which they, you know, in each of those processes, they have like 90 days to respond. So sure. They're going through the bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake. Yeah. I don't know. Advocacy, let's just say, is a thing that you basically have to do. Yeah. So like when our kid was getting picked on, I was like, felt uncomfortable at first saying something. Then it started escalating and I was like, okay, I have to say something. So like we escalated that and then he got into the fight and that was the first time the principal had gotten involved Mm -hmm. and they were like, well, this isn't okay. And I'm like, well, but it's this kid who's been picking on him and we have all these emails we've been sending to the teacher asking to like do something about it. And they were like, well, I didn't know. (laughs) And then I remember that the principal calls me back on my cell phone afterwards and it's like, Hey, I talked to the kid and I don't want to call it bullying because that means a specific thing, but I confirmed that all the behaviors that you said are happening, were happening and we're going to address that. And then I'm just like, okay, but like, how do I like deal with these things? Yeah. And it's weird because it's sort of like HR in a business. Like it's the best version of HR is happy employees. But like fundamentally, it's there to protect the company. 
right and make sure that like you don't have lawsuits and stuff like that like you're in compliance with things right the school is kind of the same way like the best thing for them is they teach your kids and they're happy but like the worst thing for them is like they get in trouble like they can't get in trouble so they like protect themselves from getting in trouble you're just like at some point our incentives are misaligned right but we want to get back into the like things are going well and we have nothing to complain about not in the like you're not meeting your legal obligation to do these things. Right. So like, even after you get the IEP, it's this legal obligation to do stuff. And then if at points we found that they weren't doing what they were supposed to do because they didn't have the resources. And on some level, I'm like, Hey, I get it. Like you don't have the resources. Like the city is not providing you with all the stuff that you need. And you have a ton of extra kids who are having issues post the pandemic. But at the same time, you know, like, that's what you're legally obligated to do. So if I don't hold you to that, you are literally not going to do it. Like you've demonstrated that to me. So advocacy complicated. The most powerful episodes this year were those that covered loss. Hear from a handful of startup dads and moms about coping with loss and emerging stronger. I was pregnant at the same time as my sister, who's my Irish twin. And so we were just living the dream, like both living in DC, both having kids at the same age. And I went on to lose that baby and and she went on to have hers. And Mm. so just really heartbreaking to have that all happen and to learn those lessons in a pretty isolated way. Mm. And it wasn't that my family wasn't super supportive. It was the fact that we didn't really understand it. Our friends didn't really understand it. And yeah, it was a hard, it was a hard thing to go through alone. You know, for people who are listening to this, and it's a very common experience, like I said, this has come up in almost every one of the conversations I've had so far. What advice would you give to somebody who is going through this? What would you tell them to do? Or what would you tell someone who knows someone who's going through this? Because people don't always know how to act in those situations. Don't go through it alone. Mm. Try to connect yourself with folks that you can deeply share your story with. I was actually able to do this with one person. Her name is Despina. Mm. And her and I actually had like the same gene mutation that was like really rare that caused these multiple miscarriages. And we were willing to do this drug that actually required two injections a day that wasn't fully proven But we only found out because we did our own research and went to the right perinatologist to get this going. Mm -hmm. And we had to be each other's coaches and advocates and teachers and encouragers through it. So get your intimate community that you can find safety and support from. And I encourage them also being just people from all walks of life a little bit further along than you folks that have that medical background and experience, and folks that are actually emotionally healthy. That's also really important because it almost feels like you don't want to share and don't want to go through this with other folks because they can't handle it. And so I can't emphasize enough the importance of a intimate, solid community. Our situation was, you know, perfectly healthy pregnancy with our daughter all the way up until the due date and like we went in for like a regular checkup and there was no heartbeat and you know my wife had like felt our daughter kind of moving kind of earlier that day and everything so 
to say that it was a total shock to us was like an understatement. And then I think probably one of the worst parts around that I've learned around stillbirths is that, you know, typically greater than 40 to 50% of them, a cause is never found. So closure is really hard. And then making the decision to, you know, go through that journey again is like fucking terrifying, is a terrifying decision. And there's lots of reasons for this. Like women's health is massively underfunded, like all of this other stuff. But, you know, we made a very early decision right after that we were going to talk openly about it. And I can't remember exactly why all the details of why, but it was something that we just like felt very strongly about right out of the gate. And I think part of it is just that there's all sorts of like, shame in talking around these things, whether it's this or miscarriages or, you know, trouble even like getting pregnant and all of these types of things. I think it's becoming a little bit more okay to talk about. But, you know, it was interesting when we did talk openly about it, all sorts of stories surfaced from our network that I had no idea about, right? Just to show you how common these different things are. And so... You know, one of the things that we did about this and a tip that we got very early on that felt very counterintuitive was if you are in an unfortunate position where you go through a tragedy like this is that you have to tell other people how you want them to act in a situation Mm -hmm. like this. It's very counterintuitive because it's like, wait a second, like this thing happened to me. Why do I have to tell other people? Right. Why is that my burden? how to behave and yeah. how to behave and act but the thing is is that just other people just don't know they don't know what you want mm-hmm. and it makes it a very awkward and uncomfortable situation and as a result they evade around these topics and then nobody wins you don't get the support that you need and they don't feel like they're supporting right and so mm-hmm. we actually we wrote a letter to a bunch of our family and friends just telling them like what had happened, how we felt about it. And we ended it with like, here's how you can support us. Here's what we want you to do. We want to talk about it. Like, you know, we want you to use our name. Like, we don't want you to like all these types of things. And that was probably one of the most helpful things that we would do. And we got so many responses from that being like, thank you. My guess is that was really hard for you to do, but it helped me so much know like what you all wanted. And so... That was probably, yeah, yeah, that was out of like the 80, 20 things that we did. That was a big thing. And then also just finding other people who had been through similar situations. And I'll say like people who have been through something like stillbirths versus miscarriage versus trouble, getting pregnant, all that kind of stuff, we found were actually quite different. So it was actually very important that we found other people that had been through something very close to us. There's all sorts of organizations all over the place that help with this. Now, one specifically called HAND, H-A-N-D is like the acronym. I can't remember what it all stands for. And through those experiences, we actually met a couple couples that will probably be like lifelong friends as part of that. And so, you know, I think the hard thing is that just like everybody tells you that everybody processes these things differently. That is 100% true. My wife and I processed it very differently from each other. And we had to go through a lot of conversations to close that gap. At the same time, everybody tells you everybody processes it differently, but is very quick to 
tell you what's going to happen <laughs> and like how you're going to feel. Yeah. yeah. And I, like I want to like I had like I want to punch you in the face type of reactions when it first happened. Right. Which is they sure. would be like everybody process it differently. But let me tell you what you're going to think next. And so and they're trying to be helpful. Right. Totally. Like, they're, yeah. They're trying, yeah, they just, yeah. Yeah. They're trying to be helpful and stuff. And so what I've tried to do when we felt in similar situations, because I feel like a huge a huge obligation to like for those who go through it is to help them right is that i'm just like very conscious of like here's what we went through here are some tools that we found helpful here are some tools we tried but did not find helpful and why and you should you know pick and choose like for you and your specific situation so i think these things are hard like a lot of them aren't talked about i'll mention one more that i haven't mentioned which is postpartum depression for both the male and the female is a very real thing and is another one that I have learned is very common and okay. is just something that everybody needs to be aware of. So when you add all of these things up, right, trouble getting pregnancy, things like miscarriages to stillborn to postpartum depression, like all this type, the whole journey, right? Yeah. Like the percentage of people who go through one of these things is extremely high, right? Which is exactly sure. why... We should be talking about all of it, right? And it, and it should be all okay. We went through like three IVF failures and then that cost a lot of money. Right? This is mm-hmm. stuff I don't talk about. I've not talked about anywhere else <laughs> except here. Um, and then I don't know what it was, <laughs> but we, we went to this great facility in Denver, CCRM, which is one of the best in the world. And it so happened that it ended up being twins. And I'm like, what the <laughs> We went from having three IVF failures in California to now twins. And we were super excited. We brought like twin strollers. We had a baby shower for twins. We bought matching outfits. Think about the emotional investment. We took pictures with everything twin with my older daughter saying, you know, I'm twice as lucky and all mm-hmm. these things, right? It becomes then more of an emotional connection. And then I'm at a meeting in San Francisco and I get a call from Vivi crying. And I freak out and I'm like, what happened? Like they can't track the heartbeat. And I go there and she's surrounded by doctors and one kid has passed, right? And Mm. this is now fifth month in, I think. And I just can't make sense of it. I'm mentally shut because I'm not a medical professional. I don't know the ramifications. And all her doctor friends are surrounded. And, and we can't, we can't pull, pull the kid that passed anyway, Eliza. And so a um, couple of days pass by now. She's sitting eh, under watch. She's sleeping under watch. And then the doctors tell me that, hey, we're going to have to pull out the second kid because the heartbeat mm. is fluctuating up and down and up and down. And I freak out. I'm like, we've had now three IVF failures. We're this far. Like, are you really going to pull a kid four and a half, five months premature? Like, what are mm-hmm. the odds? And Vivi just looks at me and she's like, I don't have time for, for you to play satellite doc. Like, these are my friends. This is our profession. We're going to go in. We're going to take the risk. I took yeah. risk in everything business. She's on the other side of risk <laughs> on, in personal life. And so what happened was the umbilical cord wrapped around and choked the other kid. And it was mm-hmm. doing the same for Amelia. And so Amelia was born five months premature. 
has a very tough time, man. Like she was in the incubator and we were looking at and seeing babies around us pass, right? Imagine she was born at a pound mm. and some seven, eight inches, less than a pound, like 500 grams and change or less and, and like nine, 10 inches or, or really small. And it's like we observed her look, looked like a little rodent and, and grew into a child with no signs of anything. Perfect. Like mm. our miracle child. But, you know, I think what kept us sane during that time was there's this physician's mom's group and they had a group for parents with premature babies. And so my wife would always log on and communicate with the people there. And just seeing other people whose preemie kids had grown into full-fledged functioning humans with no side effects or disabilities was encouraging, right? And I think ultimately you got to just manifest sometimes, right? And and I think my wife, Vivi, she's willed this life into existence. It was a very tough time emotionally, mentally, and more for her. And, and till today, it's hard, right? Because every year it's a hard time at the birthday and it's now five years. And yeah, we have her ashes in a heart next to my wife's dad's ashes. And it's something that you can't forget, especially for a mom. Like we saw this child in our hands that we had to cremate, right? And I, I think emotionally... It's something, there are some things in life that don't leave you. And this is one of those things because you look at Amelia, they were meant to be identical, mono, mono, identical twins. That means pretty much one feels the other's pain, like, like yeah. that movie from Jackie Chan or whatever it was. And so when we look at her, we think of the other one, right? It's, it's yeah. not something that you can forget. But Neither should you, right? I think life is meant to be full of good memories and not so good memories, not so happy memories. The not so happy ones help you realize that, you know, for every rose there's a dozen thorns and yeah. that keeps you <laughs> that keeps you sane or in check. There is plenty to look forward to in 2024. Hear from some startup dads about what they're excited for in the new year. I'm looking forward to my four-year-old turning five. Mm. And hopefully the fucking force will be done. Uh, <laughs> that's what I'm probably most looking forward to. That happens yeah. in January, but I'm guessing he's going to be more like a five and a half before we're kind of out of the woods. The current insanity. I'm actually most looking forward to my wife's 40th birthday because we're on this 150 day transformation and all my passion and love and effort is involved there. So I'm just most looking forward to it. And the fortunate thing is her 40th birthday is going to be celebrated in the Philippines because my cousin is getting married and we're also officiating his wedding. So Fun. really looking forward to that. Really looking all forward right. To that. I think a lot of the side projects that I've been dicking around on for the last year are going to materialize in 2024. So we will see how that turns out. But I, um, 2023 has been a year of like 
experimenting with a bunch of things. Always, you know, my ADHD brain, unfortunately, like can't turn things. Like I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. And then I go really deep on it for a month. And so, um, but I, I do think some of these things will start to become more real next year. Really, I'm psyched about us as a team at the company, uh, really starting to build a culture together. We are, you know, about to release kind of our operating principles, which are like our company-wide values that we are going to align around. That's happening next week. And and then from there, you know, we're going to try to work on implementing them, which is really going to help build our culture. Uh, and we are back in offices now two days a week. That's why I'm here and, and not at home. And I, I'm really psyched about kind of where that's all, all going. That's going to be really positive. And then on a, on a, you know, on a personal level, I, I feel like having kids like things change all the time, but my, this coming year, my kids are going to go from like nursery school to like kindergarten. Oh. And that's going to be like a really big kind of change, change for us in, in, in how things have been. Cause the last few years have been very much the same in day to day, much more time in school versus at home. So I am on the one hand apprehensive about it. On the other hand, I'm very excited about it because I don't know, my children are like core focus of my life. So yeah. a lot of it revolves around them. I think it is traveling in, you know, to exciting places with, with my wife and also with our son. And he's, you know, going to turn three next year. So he's, he's getting to this really fun age where the travel is actually kind of meaningful for him. Like he remembers yeah. the places, the people, the experiences, and it, it forms these shared experiences and touch points that you can kind of refer back to and talk about. And also being in these new places with him is like actively interesting and enjoyable. It's super different to traveling before having a family, but just like rewarding and really fun in a different way. And also with remote work, you know, it's more feasible to do that kind of thing more and more, maybe even to work a little bit while traveling or whatnot, as opposed to five or more years ago when it was like, you know, you do your vacation, but then you'd be primarily based out of wherever you live for, yeah. you know, 45 to 50 weeks of a year. Uh, yeah. So I'm just looking forward to that TBD on exactly where we go, but I know that there will be some fun travel involved. I think without a doubt, it's a family holiday. So we didn't yeah. get one in, in 2023. You know, I was due to appear on one of your Reforge programs, but but couldn't because we had a family holiday booked. That family holiday actually ended up at the last minute getting canceled because of an earthquake in Morocco. So we're due oh. to go to Morocco, big earthquake happened and and yeah, we couldn't go in the end. So absolutely looking forward to just getting away somewhere warm. UK isn't very warm. <laughs> no, it certainly is not. <laughs> uh, somewhere warm away from everything for a couple of weeks. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that that happens and I wish for no other earthquakes to your destination. So I appreciate or right. other natural disasters or, or any other natural disasters. Yes. The only disasters will be those that, that your family brings. Exactly. <laughs> we bring many. It's hard to isolate one thing. We've got a bunch of fun stuff coming up in the next 12 months. I just turned 40. Michelle turns 40 in April. So that's pretty exciting. We have a bunch of friends who we're celebrating next year, weddings for some really close friends, 40th birthdays for some of our close friends. But I, I think probably the thing that I'm most excited about is we've been for the last three years building a house in New Mexico as kind of a getaway home. 
and it was just completed about a week and a half ago. So we're diving into this era of life where we're going to have uh, a bit of an escape from the city. So I'm looking forward to enjoying that. That's awesome. Michelle, anything to add to that list of awesome stuff to look forward to? Mine's pretty simple, but profound for me. It is rest. I am going to create a way to find significant rest. I have been pushing the gas pedal all the way for, I would say, like the last seven years. And I am really looking forward to creating rest. So the things that spring to mind is our oldest kids, both of them, I think, have found their sport. So it took a while. But, you know, my, my son is really back into basketball. My All our kids, all our girls are into into dancing. But my eldest especially is really keen on, on pursuing that. And I'm really curious to see how they will take that forward in the next year, to see how much they will put in. And, you know, I've seen it this year, but I think they've now really honed in on that's my thing. And I just want to see what that you know, how a 13-year-old and 11-year-old, what, what they will do with that. And the other thing I'm quite looking forward to from a kind of personal perspective is over the years now, I've made contact with loads of dads like you have as well and made contact with them and helped quite a few kind of by, you know, having conversations, talking stuff through stuff that we've experienced. And, you know, everybody has somebody that's like two steps ahead. And then equally, we're, we're looking forward to, to receiving the, the mentorship from, up from other people. But connecting with more more dads and kind of helping myself become better, as well as kind of helping those that might be a couple of steps behind. That's quite fulfilling. I really enjoy that. In the field that we're in with technology and kind of like the macro environment, it's been a mess since COVID, right? And so I think we're all trying to figure out like, what's the new normal? You know, that could be very tactical to like valuations and how we value our businesses and and all that to just like, what does like normal business look like if that's, it's ever a thing. So, you know, I feel we've been teetering on this, like, Hey, everything's great. Or we're in a recession or, you know, at, at this point, I'm kind of like, can we just have something, whether it's one way or the other, like, that's what I'm hopefully looking forward to 2024, you know, hopefully more time with my kids as they continue to grow up and do more fun things with them. And, you know, lastly, like what fun AI stuff is going to happen? You know, I I predicted a oh shit moment coming with AI at some point. I thought it would be some data scandal or something. I was like, something's going to come. This stuff's moving too fast. Didn't realize what we just went through yeah. with open AI was going to be the thing. But I told our PR firm, I'm like, see, I was right. I, I uh, knew something was going to hit the fan. I could not have predicted this. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually looking forward to like, how does this all play out next year? I thought about this question very deeply and I couldn't because my brain stopped. And so the reason I'm going to answer with this is for that reason, which is I'm looking forward to a baby who sleeps. That's a good one. We are at the five-month mark. Everyone says it's about to get better. Everyone so far has been real wrong. And <laughs> the internet will tell you it should have already occurred right now. But, you know, we've read all the things. All the things are very similar or we've done all the things that you're supposed to do. Like, turns out they shouldn't be sleeping in a place where it's extremely bright, where mm -hmm. it's very loud. Like, thank you. No kidding. So we yeah. do all those obvious things. My wife doesn't... I think we're at the point where it's either we don't sleep or we try the cry it out method, which my wife has has taken off the table. Yeah. And that puts me in the very difficult position of espousing 
that our precious little innocent child should independently suffer. <laughs> Lest we all suffer. Thank you for listening to today's special Best of Startup Dad. There is so much more wisdom I wish I could have shared. If you enjoyed the podcast this year, the best way to ring in the new year is to share this episode and leave me a review. It'll help more people find this show. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from Tommy Heron. You can stay up to date on all my thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fishmanafnewsletter.com. See you next year. Thank you.